This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday to you and happy Dr. Seuss Day. Grew up on the book, my first book, Cat in the Hat. Happy Dr. Seuss Day. Did you read that book in a boat? No, but I, I I did it sitting by a moat. Please tell me you didn't read it with a goat. I did. Who's <laughs> carrying a big remote? I've used moat twice, but two different types of moats. Reason moats. Cat in the Hat, greatest book of all time. I mean, it made me learn about cats and hats. Dr. Seuss Day. Greater than How the Grinch Stole Christmas? Do you know what Dr. Seuss... Yes. Ooh. Sorry. That guy scared me because he was green. Um, Do you know what Dr. Seuss's real name was? Uh, The Lorax? No. Hmm. Theodore Seuss Geisel. Born on March 2nd. Commonly known by Dr. Seuss, by the pen name Dr. Seuss. He was a writer, a poet, a cartoonist. Though best known as a children's author, he released a whopping 46 books for young tykes. His career also saw him work as an illustrator for advertising campaigns, as a political cartoonist during the Second World War. He was also a true perfectionist, known to discard 95% of the material before setting on a theme for a new book. Well, read his, read his books and you can tell he's a perfectionist. Well, he also used very simple words. Those rhymes are perfect. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Most of them aren't even words, though. Happy uh, Dr. Seuss Day. It's also Old Stuff Day. This day's for Terry. Just old stuff. Same old, same old. Okay. So they yeah, we, we celebrate things that, that are old. I think that was a nail-on-the-head comment. I'm not sure how that <laughs> applies, but okay. Because you're old. You're older. No, I'm wiser. There is an age difference. Yeah, wisdom difference. <laughs> wow. The, uh, uh, the cool thing about today's Old Stuff Day, it actually might go hand-in-hand hand with our first guest where we're talking about grip strength. Yeah. Grits? Grip. Oh. Yeah, you yeah. got to turn your earphones up. I think, you know, I think you're old if you're talking about grits strength, too. <laughs> Man, get your grits. Uh, remember uh, the show where she'd say, kiss my grits? What show was that? Alice. How do you know Really? That? How I do you know it. that? Because I watched it. So you are old. See, I'm well, going to put a little I... check on old because you just remembered Alice. Yeah. Well, what we... was the lady's name? That just Flo. proved a point. Flo, kiss Whoa. my grits. Remember that? So you are old. Two checks. It was on TV Land for quite a while. TV Land? TV Land. There's another one. Check number three. Very old. Nick at Night? (gasps) Ooh, that's even older. Came on after Nickelodeon shut off at like six. Oh, my gosh. saying. Nickelodeon, those existed like back in the 20s. A Nickelodeon? I think think that was different, too. Oh. It was totally different. Uh, Old Stuff Day, but we're talking about grip strength. Apparently, the millennials... Are losing grip strength, like by twenty percent. So from my generation to their generation, grip strength—the ability, to, the, the your strength of your hand and your grip 
drop 20%. How is that possible, though, when they're constantly exercising their grip on their phone? Yeah, but if, they're gri- if they have a constant grip on their phone, then they don't have like a grip on the lawnmower. Or reality. Or reality or a rake. <laughs> yeah. So millennials, are we yeah. in trouble because – You have to work cow. with your hands. To you got it, yeah. But they have I, – I would say that they have true grip. No, that's that's – again, I think you're – you keep thinking of grit. Oh, it's fine. You'll get over it. Old Stuff Day and Grip Strength Day. Crazy research coming out uh, about maybe, you know, are we fading? Are we fading as a generation? Forever, our grip strength from the ability of Tarzan to swing through the vines right. in the jungle to today. Now we would just slip right down that vine and just like be mush on the bottom of the jungle floor. The subtitle is Are Millennials Soft? That's really what we're asking. So they're going to fail the love test at the county fair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. They also if, won't be able yeah. to hit the hammer and hit the bell, so can't do that one either. Yeah, you're not going to be able to. be able to swing the hammer and they can't do let's that. Let's just say the millennials are going to have a really hard time at the carnival. Yeah. Or the fair. It's hard. Uh, so we'll get to all of that fun. Plus, of course, we've got to talk about Jeff Sessions and, and the Trump – is his middle name Beauregard? Let's Jeff just say it is. Beauregard. Even if it isn't, it's fun. He talks like a Beauregard. Beauregard. Uh, all of that's going on because the Trumps still have a really tight grip on um, Russia. Allegedly. Or Russia has a tight, tight grip on the Trumps. We'll find out the, the Trump uh, administration. We'll find out about all of that. Let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the world? So two big stories last night. The New York Times reports that the Obama administration rushed to preserve intelligence of Russian election hacking, citing more than a half dozen current and former officials, some of whom said they were speaking to draw attention to the material and ensure proper investigation by Congress. The article points out that the work was not directed by President Obama, but was in an effort to keep the Trump team from burying the evidence. Then the Washington Post reports that Senator Jeff Sessions spoke twice last year with the Russian ambassador to the U.S. Justice Department officials said encounters that he did not disclose during confirmation hearings to become attorney general. One of the reporters for the New York Times, uh, Michael Schmidt, tweeted, Trump White House keeps saying nothing needs to be investigated, but disclosures tying Trump world to Russia keep coming in. Yeah, so what should here. happen? None NBC News cameras caught up with U.S. Uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions this morning after reports emerged that he had spoken twice with the Russian ambassador in the U.S. during the 2016 campaign. In fact, as we said he did not disclose. Clip mm-hmm. one. Well, I have not met with any Russians at any time to discuss any political campaign, and those remarks are unbelievable to me and are false, and um, I don't have anything else to say about that. What about so the thank you. He then went on and said that, you know, he said he had nothing left to say, but then went on right. and said that to, to that same reporter that he would recuse himself from the Department of Justice probe of Russian meddling in the election whenever it's appropriate. Yeah. When it becomes appropriate, he would then. There are calls for himself. his resignation, as you can imagine, from Democrats. Yeah. Republicans are not necessarily on his side. Yeah, Kinda, they're, yeah, they're like, oh, not another one. Even Jason Chaffetz said, "What we, you know, this has to, we have to have an investigation of this, and you got to recuse yourself. What's right. going on here?" Though he didn't cool. really have that initially. He's yeah. warming up to that idea. Well, yeah, the, yeah, the more that come out, having as talked it, to as Russia. it keeps piling on. Now we have six unnamed sources here that are confirming some of these things. Mm. So they might be fake because the leaks we know are real, 
the news itself is fake. Absolutely. So that's how we're supposed to guide our guiding principle here. Right. Seven Baltimore police officers are accused of robbing and extorting as much as $200,000 from residents, prosecutors said on Wednesday. The officers were arrested and now face federal racketeering charges. These are real, really simple robberies by people wearing police uniforms, says the attorney, U.S. attorney in charge of the case. The officers allegedly stole drugs, firearms, and cash ranging from 200 to $2,000 from victims, some of whom were just ordinary residents who had not committed any crimes. They face as much as 20 years behind bars if convicted. This happened during the uh, the Baltimore riots in 2015 after that man was put yeah, in the back of the, right. uh, the van and he broke his neck, I oh, guess. that was horrible. And so that happened as those that unrest happened. They just stopped people along the way and took their stuff. So oh, now, boy. now the cops are under investigation for that. And finally, Snap. Yeah. They own Snapchat. Yeah. Which I know is your favorite form of social media. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever Snapchatted. Yeah, I haven't either. I've looked at the app. I've snapped and I've, chatted, but I, never at the same I, time. I've been featured on many Snap stories. Have you? Yes. Our producers use it quite a bit, and I usually end up in the background not paying attention to what they're doing, and I just <laughs> you know like to see how I'm showcased. Uh, they raised $3.4 billion in its better-than-expected initial public offering of stock on Wednesday. The company, which is the parent of the popular messaging app Snapchat, sold 200 million shares, yeah, 200 million shares at $17 each, above the projected range of $14 to $16. The pricing value of the company at $24 billion dollars. Holy cow. Their stock makes it the market debut today. The IPO is among the most anticipated tech debuts since Twitter's in 2013 and Facebook in 2012. They had 158 million daily active users as the start of this year. Most of them young people, teens from those teens to the early 30s. So you're kind of out of that. Yeah, demo yeah. There. In the late 30s. Um, Speaking of old stuff day, the apps grow. Uh, Alternative facts. Yeah, the apps growth slowed last year as it faced competition from Facebook. Yeah, uh, Instagram because Instagram stole their kind of stories idea. Right, that functionality. Of the app they just flat stole it. It was a great move by them because Instagram just totally destroyed the growth of uh, Snap at the beginning of the year. It was kind of funny to watch that. Also, uh, the IPO filings, you have to put out a bunch of disclosures, a bunch of financial information. Snap disclosed that they lost $515 million last year. They lost half a billion dollars, dollars. and yet they're valued at $23 billion. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. So that's Snap, crazy. Snapchats. Isn't that what FDR would do like on Sunday nights? Fireside. Told- Those are fireside chats. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was kind of the warning if you want to look into maybe purchasing some stock today. You're dealing with a company that lost half a billion dollars last year. <sighs> that is crazy. But now Facebook wasn't making a lot of money when it did its IPO, right? It, it None uh, no. of them were making money. It made a bet that it was yeah. going to sell advertisements against your cat photos and family pictures, and it worked. But that so. turned, yeah, that turned into a really good bet. Yeah. So, and I would really love Snapchat to take off, and like I think it's, I think the kids should get more into it. Really? No. Well, that's the other but thing is who's using it. It's, it's all young, kids. young yeah, people. It's the future, and so you're betting on people. But the the other side of it is once those people hit about thirty, they stop using it. Oh, do they? Yeah. It's not like they continue into their 30s and, you know, moving on that way. It's just they, they start seeing people drop off at a certain well, age. Well, at some point you got to go to work. Well, yeah. And so can you bet on something that yeah. kids are using who aren't necessarily spending money on it? Right. How are they making money? The advertising, is it really targeted towards these kids? Yeah. How are, do you monetize so, the people that don't have money? Yeah. So that's kind of some of the issues around that mm. stock. Well, I think it would be really smart for Facebook to buy it. 
Well, they tried because this is something that this is something that could take out Facebook. But it's now it costs too much. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now you just can't buy it. <laughs> Unbelievable. Because I've started many a company that was making no money, and I couldn't sell them for millions, or I couldn't sell them for hundreds. Well, you need to sell them. You need to inflate the just the very idea of what you're doing. Not necessarily yeah. do anything, just no, have no, a no. great idea. You have a better idea. And talk it up and then they give you, you know, venture funding and then your cap then valuation. It's great. Yeah. Well, maybe this is the reason why grip strength in millennials is dropping. Why they're getting so soft is because they love Snapchat and it's not fiscally responsible or safe. I mean, yeah. it's not it's not a great bet. I guess it is a great w- bet. Would they have better grip strength if they used an actual camera that had a button to push? Maybe. Instead of you're just tapping a screen. But they have like have you ever seen the millennials that work with us? Have you ever Every seen day. their thumbs? Yeah. They're huge. They have huge thumbs, like three times bigger than any other finger on their hand. I know what you mean. Because like, of Tinder and stuff. I walk by and they're like doing – they're lifting weights with their thumb. Yeah. They have thumb gyms. Like, you know, those really heavy magnets? You'd think that would help their grip. <laughs> and then they put a little – there's like a little thumb headband around the tip of the thumb yeah. as they're lifting. Yeah. Well, because they sweat a lot. Yeah. Um, did you hear the price? Uh, Waterhouse consultant Cooper's accountants are no longer – those two that were involved, Martha Ruiz <laughs> – and Brian Cullinan, Cullinan will uh, not be back next year. Right. Now, they haven't been fired. No. They're, they work for, uh, I think the, the man has worked for the company for like 30 years. Yeah. So, I mean, he's, he's in there. He's the guy. But it was human error and um, – Well, Variety. Yeah. You go to Variety. Uh, you, hold on. You, oh. you read Variety. Well, I saw it this morning. Okay. Um, it was in my feed. Just kind of fell right. in. There's all these photographs of that guy sitting he's in backstage. Your restroom. He's backstage, just tweeting away. I know. I and saw he's got those. holding two two red cards. And like oh, there it is and with the phone in the same hand as go. the envelopes. So yeah, he was he was distracted. So, so they, they won't be back. They need to they need to have presenter training. Mm-hmm. They need to have accountant training. Yeah, and they need to take away the accountant's phone mm-hmm. as soon as the and we award check, ceremony starts. We got to check their grip strength. Mm. While we're at it. They also failed to get on the stage and fix the problem in a timely manner. Because apparently they have a protocol of how this all works, and they didn't do that. Well, yeah. Aren't they supposed to run in from the side saying, stop, stop, stop? Immediately. It was a couple minutes. They were, what, three acceptance speeches in before they (laughs) really fixed it. (laughs) I mean, I can get one acceptance speech. I get that. Yeah. Someone jumps in immediately. Halfway, yeah. But three? He was just trying to save his own skin. These people – okay – Keep it, keep this in mind. These yeah. people are – accountants are not used to being in front of millions of people yeah, on that live would be television. A, that would be like – yeah, that's a scary thing. So they were probably terrified. They didn't want to look stupid. Yeah. Well, yeah. But – and weirdly, they looked pretty stupid. Hmm. Not weird? They got in so, variety. Yeah, well. I mean if you live in Hollywood, that's the magazine you want to be in. <laughs> What do you think about uh, Jeff Sessions? I mean, he said he didn't talk to any Russians, but then he he kind of added to about anything. Him talking the, to the Russians, that is part of his job of his as being job. a senator. The yeah. problem is on the committee he was on, he's the only one that spoke to the ambassador. Well, and he, that but he also period. told Al Franken that – he didn't. That's his problem. During the confirmation hearing, he said, I never talked to anybody. Yeah. So he lied. Yeah. But that, so, yeah, that's what Ted Cruz jumped on his side and said. He was talking about, I didn't talk to any Russian 
about campaign stuff. Right. Because the context was that the campaign officials had been talking. And actually, the the question that uh, he was asked wasn't even if he had talked to any Russians. It was, would you recuse yourself if you found out that more people from the campaign had talked? So then he offered up. And then he offered up. I haven't. He he offered up. I I haven't uh, talked to any Russians were his exact words. But he did. Yeah. Well, I mean, the president has said he hasn't talked to Russia in 10 years, except he talked to Vlad Putin a couple Two days weeks ago. <laughs> so, I mean, either way. Yeah. But maybe it's hard now that the USSR is gone. It's hard to know what is Russia. Well, maybe, no, no, that, I mean, maybe they're all just confused. Like, is, I mean, because all the other countries are now officially not part not of the USSR. Russia. But, yeah. I mean, but maybe they're just confused. Let's just, okay. I mean, maybe it's just give them the benefit of the doubt. Right. Russia's a big country. But don't you think if you talk – because he did talk to 25 ambassadors last year. Right. But you'd probably remember Russia. Yeah. And they usually document those conversations. I mean I remember – I talked to a lot of people and I remember a lot of them. I don't remember their name, but I remember who came from where and who did what. But yeah. I'd remember talking to a, the an ambassador. And then I'd remember for sure talking to a Russian ambassador. Right. Yeah. Okay. Seems like now all this is allegedly, yeah. right? Yeah, because right, right. He's saying he didn't do it. It, just, it sounds like more old stuff. Yeah, it could be more old stuff. I didn't Didn't Al Franken call him up to just offer him some some advice and and also to just say, you know what, Jeff, you're good enough. Yeah, you're smart enough, Stuart. And doggone it, people like you. Yeah, he did. Which is what's I think that's what's great about Al Franken. And I think he was quoting FDR. Uh, no. From his uh, Snapchats. No, those are fireside chats. Was not He was quoting Stuart Smalley, I think his name was. FDR was quoting Stuart Smalley? No, Al Franken. But oh. good to have you with us, Jeff. I didn't even know Al Franken was alive when FDR was alive. Yeah, up to date. Grip strength, folks. Uh, are the millennial age, are, are they losing their grip? Are we as humans becoming softer, weaker, more squishy? Yeah, crazy research up next about uh, the fact that we may be raising weaklings. My spare tires are a bit squishy. Mine really impede my ability to move. We will take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Stick with us. Well, the classic test of strength for a man is if he can open the jar in the kitchen. You know, that just won't budge for anyone else. New research is showing that grandpa may have been uh, better at opening jars than dad. And perhaps dad is better than opening jars for than his millennial. In just one generation, grip strength has decreased in millennials by 20%. Here with us today to explain this research and the steep decline is Dr. Richard Bohannon. Dr. Bohannon, thank you for being with us today. Uh, glad to do it. This um, is is this a big deal? I mean, it, it seems like a big number of grip strength twenty percent in really, I guess, one generation. Why is it why is it such a thing to worry about? Yeah, I'm not sure I'd, I would worry about it. I mean, I think we try to gain clues from things around us in terms of trends, and and therefore, is there something we should be 
you know, addressing or doing something about. Yeah. So if there is truly a, a 20% decrease, I mean, that's just comparing two points. I'd be even more concerned if it was a 20% decrease again at, after a similar period of time. Hmm. But uh, uh, it's, yeah, I'm not saying, I've actually talked to Dr. Fain about this, and we've been involved in some things together. But the, uh, as I think is, is established, that the comparison group that was, was uh, used was from a study by Mathiewicz many years ago, but it's a relatively small sample in that study, and, and probably a convenient sample as well, as uh, was Dr. Fain's data. So uh, it may be really indeed picking up on something, and I think we should be alert to the possibilities of of increased weakness or decreased fitness accompanying you know less use of our bodies. You know, don't use, don't you know, you lose it if you don't use it, kind of thing. Mm. Uh, so if it is, if there really is a twenty percent uh, decrease, given that grip strength probably is a reasonable indicator of overall body strength, uh, that would concern me. Yeah. Is it, um, I mean, I, I guess when we talk about grip strength, I mean, then we get into the, you know, the the evolutionary reality or I, ideas of, you know, we're, our, our ancestors were swinging from vines and they needed their hands and their grip strength there. They were uh, doing a lot of... Uh, you know, work with their hands is is would you consider grip strength a, a good indicator of overall health and um, or is it just you know kind of we're evolving into a, a different species, higher, more advanced, yeah. less <laughs> well, physical? That's how you define those things, doesn't it? Yeah, but uh, you know, I mean, it is a good overall indicator. There have been uh, several studies which have tried to determine whether it can be used as an overall indication of strength and doing that by measuring not only grip strength but then the strength of other upper limb uh, muscles and then of lower limb muscles and it generally turns out that it does a pretty good job of that uh, grip strength is a better indicator probably of other upper limb strengths than lower limb strength and generally if you measure the strength say on one side of the body it tends to be more correlated with the strength of other muscle groups on that same side than the other side so there are certainly exceptions. You could have someone who has an isolated nerve lesion or something that, that directly affects the muscles of grip, and then it's no longer going to be a, a good indicator of overall body strength. But in people that are generally intact musculoskeletally and neuromuscularly, it, it does provide a good indication of strength. Do, do you sense, because um, a lot of this was the correlation to kind of the millennial generation. Right. And do, do you sense just in your work on a, with, with students, at a university, at Campbell University, do you sense there's a difference or a decline? Yeah, that's interesting because we expose the students to using grip dynamometry because of its value. And uh, if I have been all these years <laughs> keeping record of all my students' strengths, yeah. that's a new idea. Hey, I should do that. <laughs> but Too I think they have to go through the Institutional Review Board and get some consent or something like that. But, uh, yeah, so I think it, you, that would be, have been very interesting. But So I do cover it with the students and tell them how important it is. Uh, but since I've not written down those numbers in terms of when they're there, it's part of one of their labs. So I haven't written down those numbers, so I really couldn't say for certain. <clears throat> yeah, it's 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 interesting how research comes out, and then all of a sudden it, it, it opens up 500 more questions, which is, I guess, this is the scientific method, right? Now, okay, now we know maybe more questions to ask, and only if only we had been capturing that along the way. What do you sense is um, is happening to us, I mean, or what will happen as we move forward? I, I, I was reading an article the other day about other 
physiological issues that are now coming up because of technology, issues, you know, problems with our neck strain and and our eyes. And do you see some real physiological changes that over time will take place simply because we are using more tech and less maybe tools, less heavy tools, heavy lifting? Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, we are going to adapt to that. And there's some uh, research, probably not in the last five years, but not 30 years ago, where they actually looked at various fitness parameters and such of people that lived in rural areas as opposed to urban areas. And now this isn't talking about uh, in different countries. So we're not talking, uh, say, Aborigines or something in Australia and, I don't know, Parisians or something. Uh, but I think it was actually in Scandinavia somewhere. And w- whenever that study was, I don't have it in front of me, but there clearly was a higher level of fitness on people that lived in a rural setting as opposed to an urban setting. And that would seem to suggest that the demands on the on the body in that setting, you would expect them to be different. And accordingly, uh, you would expect with them doing more work and so forth to be stronger. We actually have some very interesting information in that regard. We did a meta-analysis a number of years ago, looking at the number of steps people take. And so in other words, we didn't have raw data. We used data from a bunch of studies. But one of the studies actually looked at the Amish. So the Amish were like, oh, I don't recall what it was. Let's say averaged, I'm just guessing my, in my recall, let's say 8,000 more steps per day mm. than all the other samples. So if you want to use that as a, as a, as a sort of an indicator, it would suggest indeed that uh, people do adapt to stress. It's so and interesting, we know that yeah. Things. yeah. We know that's true also. We do know things about that in terms of posture as well, that, uh, that posture does adapt uh, to the things we do commonly if we don't sort of fight it. Oh, yeah. In fact, um, so, I mean, part of, I guess, what we're learning is that uh, we got to be careful. We got we got to be, I guess, a little more intentional about some of these things that, that are adaptive, I guess. Yeah, many years ago, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, I don't have permission to say this, but uh, I, was in, I was encouraging my daughter to sit up straight, uh-huh. and uh, she suggested, but that's uncomfortable or something. <laughs> and, I, and I think I either said or thought, well, not nearly as uncomfortable as it's going to be, you know, if, if you keep doing that. She actually, yeah. I think, has relatively good posture now. Yeah. But anyway, it's just uh, a lot of the population I work with are older postmenopausal women and who end up with, you know, the, the hyperkyphosis in the back or sometimes I think referred to in when severe as widow's hump or whatever. So a lot of that can't be avoided. The bones do what the bones do, but clearly uh, it has ram- your pos- you know, what you do habitually, uh, whether uh, for good or for ill, can influence how you end up. Hmm. Oh, that's so scary. <laughs> but it's you know that seems so true, so so real to life. When we talk about um, grip strength, for example. Um, because I mean, it is just one example of health and and sign of health. But I, I guess it is also something we can work on, something we can improve. How do we go about? Uh, and, and is it worth intentionally trying to improve grip strength to improve health, or would it be better to just find other healthy activities? Yeah, I would say I, I wouldn't work on it specifically because it's not cause and effect. Though we do know it it correlates, or if you do. Um, epidemiologic research, looking at predicting outcomes in the future. We know that it is an important predictor of mortality, uh, things like post-operative morbidity, future disability, 
uh, length of stay, hospitalization, all sorts of things. So think, oh, okay, well, maybe we ought to do something about that. But I don't think it's intrinsically important unless you actually have work where you need to be able to, to grip vigorously. But, it, but I think it's a marker of overall health. In fact, it's actually used in some nutrition research as an indicator of nutritional status among other things. Really? But hmm. yeah, but but I think one of the the things to think about is is strength is a good thing to have. In fact, some people have referred to as skeletal muscle as a, as an endocrine organ just because of its effect on on blood blood glucose and on other things like that. So it, it does make sense when we work on increasing strength. And in a lot of things one would do to increase strength, it will have a secondary effect of increasing grip strength. So for example, if I do pull-ups, I have to hold on to the bar mm. with a certain amount of vigor or I can't do the pull-up. In fact, I put stuff on my hands before I do pull-ups. I don't have weak hands, particularly. In fact, I'm a little bit better than average for someone my age. But that said, uh, if I really want to get through a, a nice set of pull-ups, I need to be able to hold on to that bar, at least at the gym I go to. So right. yeah, Don't get mad if you don't. The stickiness. <laughs> so uh, that, that, that helps. And also, if I were to do curls with a dumbbell, yeah. Clearly, I've got to be able to grip that weight vigorously enough so it doesn't fall out of my hand. Or if I'm doing bench press, I certainly don't want to roll it out of my hands onto my chest or something. So you will, in, the, in, in just the process of doing generalized strengthening, uh, particularly with free weights, you know, stress the muscles that, that you use in grasp, and those are both uh, intrinsic to your hand and things that, that arise, say, from your forearm. But also you use your wrist extensors to grip. So you don't have to you know, get the uh, gripper thing with a spring at the, at yeah. the, at the local, uh, what you call fitness store or something like that. There's nothing wrong with that if you choose to do so. But it's just in the, in the process of doing generalized strength training, which we all probably should be doing, uh, you, will end up, you will end up increasing the strength of your grip. Yeah. No, I think that's – it's health overall. And I mean – I, it, it, the, the body's such a complex whole system, and um, it is interesting to think that so much can be tied to the grip and the grip strength, um, like the endocrine organ. How interesting. That was such an interesting point you brought up there. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Richard Bohannon. He is a professor of health professional studies at Campbell University, a licensed physical therapist and a researcher on muscle performance. He's walking us through some of the research um, that, uh, that has come out about weak hands, weak bodies, are millennials, you know, are they just that much weaker than the, than the previous generations? You know, maybe it's not as much to worry about unless the trend continues, but we will uh, we'll be back more with Dr. Bohannon and our own health and grip strength up next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, helping you live longer. And one thing that might help you live a little longer, uh, just simply because it's a metric of health, um, is your grip strength. Do you feel like you've got a pretty healthy grip strength? And joining us to talk about that is Dr. Richard Bohannon. Dr. Richard W. Bohannon is a professor of health uh, professional studies within the Department of Physical Therapy at Campbell University. Uh, Bohannon is a licensed physical therapist with more than 35 years of continuous clinical experience in acute care, rehab, and home care settings. And Dr. Bohannon, thank you for your insight on this topic. 
glad to be th- be there. Talk about um, kind of how we age with grip strength. I'm assuming when we're a little younger, we have probably, I mean, 20s, we probably have a better grip strength than when we're 50. Is that the case? Uh, to a degree. Different studies have, have uh, sort of emphasized uh, different outcomes in that regard. But what we can say, we start at the beginning. We've uh, done some work with some in, in, a, in relation to an NIH-funded project, not our funding, but we use the data. And what it showed is that strength increases linearly from about three years of age up until puberty, at which time girls sort of flatten out. They really don't get, they really pretty much are where they're going to be by the time they're maybe 14, 15, 16. Doesn't tend to improve a whole lot. Uh, whereas then the boys kind of take off and improve a lot. But in terms of the 20s, that is probably, uh, the 20s and 30s are probably when strength is the highest. But in a number of studies, they show that it really doesn't tend to start decreasing probably until the 50s. Hmm. And at that point, it's not necessarily decreased very much. So it's more of a, uh, a curvilinear kind of thing. So it goes up and it hits a peak, and then after a while it sort of holds it there, and then it decreases. But you can definitely say that after 60 years of age, uh, it's very reasonable to expect that people's strength is going to decrease. Yeah. I had a wonderful gentleman that was kind of my adopted grandfather, 98 years old when he died. But literally, I mean, at 97 years of age, he could crush my hand because he was milking cows till he was probably 80 and milking uh, about 50 cows a day by hand. Uh And so and then farming and gardening and doing all of these different things. I mean, I guess a lot of this is just being active, keep doing just being active in life. Absolutely. And like some of that may be. Uh, sort of coincidental. It's genetic, your maybe. Job. It's what you do. Well, it just it's what you do. Like the farmer example yeah. you gave. In other cases, we have to be intentional about it. And I tell my my patients that kind of thing in regard to other measures. So I'll say, well, really, I want you to stand up out of a chair, you know, intentionally, and because they'll say something like, well. You know, I get up out of the chair when I go to the bathroom or when I go to the kitchen or or this, that, and the other. But I says, no, 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 that's not good enough. Because what we know from some of our other research and summary research as well is that people usually stand up out of a chair. Of course, it differs. But it's probably somewhere between about 45 and 70 times per day. So you have these people that sit in their lounge chair all day long, basically, and don't do virtually anything. So Mm. they're getting up incidentally, five times a day, really isn't going to get it in terms of helping to maintain the strength of their lower limbs. So similarly, if it it was a matter of wanting to strengthen the upper limbs, or even if that included grip strength, for many of us, that means we have to intentionally go about exercising because it's not part of what we do every day. Yeah. We've even talked about different cultures on the show that – that that eat on the ground, they sit on the ground, they sleep on right. the ground. And by sleeping and being so close to the ground, they're, like you're saying, they're getting up and down so much more in the day. Yeah, in particularly, yeah, in, in some cultures, uh, that, and, that can really make a big difference. They're doing a lot more work if they're coming up from sitting on the ground than they are if they're oh, yeah. coming up from sitting on the chair. Well, and you know that the minute you actually are on the ground and you have to get up. That's what, it, I mean, I have people I know that are like, if I can't go to the ground because I'll never get back up. 
Um, right. Talk about when we th- – there's some really fascinating uh, information in some of these articles that we've been reading about grip strength, about a baby's grip strength. And really it's kind of – it's off the chart, isn't it? A baby's ability, their, their grip strength in relation to their age and their size. Well, I mean, it's sort of a little un- unexpected, yeah. given that in the womb, they probably aren't having to do a whole lot of gripping. They haven't been training it, that's right. for sure. You know, or they haven't been uh, using it incidentally on the job. So, yeah, I think the fact that they, when they're young, they do sort of almost reflexively grasp something when it's put in their hands. And then uh, the, one of the things that's referred to in one of the articles was about this guy that had these relatively newborns holding from a, a cane or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that was funny in the article. Obviously, you might not be able to get that through the institutional review board these days. Right, but anyway, right. yeah. the uh, the fact is they do have, but but since you can't volitionally, you can't ask them. I want you to grip this as hard as you can. Uh, you, you, I really don't know that we can say where they are. Uh, what I can do is because we've measured or been involved in research where they measure grip strength of people as young as three years of age. Uh, I can tell you that four-year-olds are stronger than three-year-olds, five-year-olds are stronger than four-year-olds, and on and on, mm-hmm. up until, as we talked before, until you get sort of middle-aged. Uh, so definitely uh, very young children do have you know, ability to grasp. Uh, I'm, and we know that body weight has a little bit to, something to do with that, though it's not that weight itself matters, of course. So you're not going to go put on 20 pounds of fat and you're going to be stronger all of a sudden. But we know that it does matter, probably because it reflects your muscle mass to a degree. So I would think that uh, we can't really measure the strength of, of, of babies, uh, but we know they do have some grip strength, and we know after they get a few years older uh, that, it, that, it, that it increases as they grow. Hmm. Do you sense, um, just as a researcher, academician, do you sense this will continue to drop? Will the grip strength of the generation, of the next generation, go down, do you sense? Well, we shall see. The... Uh, do I think it will? Probably a little bit. Um, but, again, I'm not absolutely convinced, you know, given the comparison studies that say it has, that it really has maybe to the degree we think, though it should, you know, give you cause for pause. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, but, yeah, if, if I think if people continue to be less active and depend more on, on others, uh, you know, instrumentation or, you know, me- mechanical help and that kind of thing, I think that uh, we could see a reduction uh, over time. What we, the, the literature tends to suggest that if we have even normative data, uh, and preferably that would be from a population-based sample, uh, that even that kind of thing should be repeated, say, I don't remember what the recommendation is, but let's say every 10 years or so, realizing that, that things evolve in terms of, you know, and that what was once a good standard is not necessarily any longer a good standard. Man, that's, um, I I guess as a parent, it has me worried because even last night I walk in and Every everyone's quiet, which is you know when I was growing up, if the kids were quiet, something was going on, and <laughs> they're up to no good. <laughs> they're up to no good. But I look around and everyone's on their phones, but they're right. all they're all in such different positions for how they're looking at their phone, handling their phone. Right. And I, I had already read these articles, and I'm thinking, oh boy, I'm just going to raise a bunch of marshmallows here. What what oh. would you suggest we do as parents to? To, you know, I mean, not necessarily to have to focus on grip strength, but focus on health overall in this tech era. Right. Uh, I would encourage intentional activity. 
you know, it's not just what, as we said, it's not like we're, you know, working on the farm or something or cutting down trees with axes. And uh, so I think in, since that's not part of most of our lives, though it is some, uh, for those of us who it's not part of our life in particular, we need to intentionally be about activity. Yeah. You know, following some of the recommendations of the uh, you know, American College of Sports Medicine or the CDC or you know, whichever group in terms of aerobic exercise and strengthening exercise, which I think the general recommendation is at least twice a week for the latter. Mm. And I mean, again, the neat thing about it being a, in a family is we can do that together. You know, we could get involved in sports. We can go on walks and do activities together. We could get out and work in the yard together. Yeah, that, yeah. Good luck with that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Train <laughs> no, him I mean, up I young. Think that's grand. Right. Yeah. One of the things that uh, we actually in our family do a lot with my daughter is uh, she used to be a, a runner. I mean, she still runs, but she ran in in high school particularly competitively and uh, a little bit in college. But anyway, so one of the things we do when we get together is rather than just sit around and talk, we Take a hike and walk. Oh, I love it. So, so it's. Uh, I mean, we excuse me. We take a hike and talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, and we couldn't do that if we ran because I wouldn't be able to keep up with her. Right. So, she's a but, yeah uh, outpatient. But hiking, we we kind of bring it down to the lowest common denominator there. So, yeah, I think that's a grand idea to to find things that you enjoy and do them together. I have a friend who's a physical therapist and does triathlons and so forth, and he has two teenage boys, and uh, they they do it together. I mean, not always the same. I think he does some master stuff sometimes. But, uh, anyway, but the point is that uh, it's something they do together. They they ride bikes together. They I think they run together. They swim. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. So I think it's sort of uh, it's a good thing for them. It, it brings them closer together. And the point of it being intentional, you know, it's that's the principle. It seems like if we want to grow grip strength, and I mean, we can keep watching for future studies and future research to see if grip strength really is going to keep dropping, but. You know, something's something's slipping, and and we know why. There's so much technology. There's there is a higher epidemic of obesity. There's all of these different things that are impacting our lives and our health. Grip strength is one measure, but uh, intentional activity is one solution as well, and it's one that we can implement today. Think about it. How can you today take your kids, get your kids more active physically as a family? How can you get out and and improve your health? Just helping you live longer. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll be back. Try to blow your mind with a little uh, insight from McKenna Vows up next. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. On the show, we uh, we have a great producer, McKenna Baus, who joins us. She's our social media guru as well. She runs our Twitter feed. And McKenna always tries to, to bring on something that bends our mind a little bit, that teaches us something we weren't thinking. Yeah. Before. Today you're talking about language again. I am. Um, so what I have discovered is that language is really good at helping us realize there are emotions that we don't even know about. And a study was conducted um, with Spanish speakers yeah. about that nails on a chalkboard feeling you get <laughs> when you hear something just really awful. Right. And I, how would you describe that feeling? <sighs> um, cringe worthy. Yeah, cringe worthy. But 
it's just one of those things that a lot of times gets clumped under. It's just it's like disgusting. Yeah, yeah but, but you, you had to describe it as nails on a chalkboard. chalkboard I think feeling. that's what people usually say. But like, think of that. That's a really long way. That's not a word. That's multiple words. Yeah, and so in um, in Spanish, there's a word called grima. Grima. Yeah, and that is a word that is means very specifically that sort of heebie-jeebie, yicky <laughs> feeling you get when you hear those awful noises. Yeah. Um, and what they did is they wanted to see if this is just slightly, just like a variation on disgust or if it's something on its own altogether. And in this study, what happened was they told um, people that they were going to play a really nasty noise like that. And one noises that they labeled as grima Grima noises, yeah. And they were going to try and ignore it. And when they tried to ignore it, their uh, yicky feeling would diminish. But then they'd go right after and play sounds that weren't necessarily grima, but were still like gross, nasty, yeah, yeah. disgusting noises. And their reactions to that didn't change, which means the way it's wired in their brain is that those are two separate emotions. Interesting. And that there's a whole very specific emotion in our brain for those really nasty chalkboard and they and they and so it's almost like on a spectrum Mm -hmm. and as you move the spectrum we may not have a word for that so we just find the closest word to that yeah but they in spanish they have the word grima which is interesting because they have all they have a word called lagrima which is a tear i mean i want to cry yeah when i hear that interesting and grima yeah isn't that interesting so it's a it's probably an offshoot of tearing maybe it's so bad that way oh interesting we need more words. Can I play a couple of sounds for you? And I want to. I want to know if you're going to have grima okay. as a result. Yeah, yeah, Are you yeah. ready? A grima sound. Yeah. <laughs> not. Was, I didn't feel grima. That was gross. Grima. That was but gross. Not quite okay. there. How about? Uh... Ah, I saw you that both was, flinch at that. That was startling. Closer. That's okay. getting a little closer. And then uh, one final one here. That's it. Right there. Jeremy Jordan playing the saxophone with his mouth, I guess. Um, Grima. Are there any other words? Um, like in other languages yeah. that have it? Um, there's some examples of words that are sort of similar. Uh, there were some German words. I'm not even going to try and pronounce them. Yeah, no, them. I saw some of those on um, another, yeah. I think article. it's still Grima, but it's Grima! Grima! You just have you to just yell, it. yell it more. <laughs> I like that. Spit more. Yeah. Um, they also have the word in Spanish, asco. And that's disgust. And that was the other kind of words that they compared the Grima ones to, an Osco-esque word. And you can make Osco like Asqueroso. Like that's really Osco. Yuck. So how how would you do that to Grima? What's like the Grimasa. I think you'd say Grimasa. Grimaso. Grimaso. I don't want to ever hear anything that falls into that category. I guess that's how you do it. Well, I think it's – isn't that amazing? Again – we think we know so much and we think we can communicate so much, but how much more could you communicate if you had the exact word for that exact emotion? Yeah, there was examples. Shakespeare, going back to Shakespeare, him trying to describe that feeling, saying the sound of a uh, you know, wheel turning on the axle yeah. without any grease and that squeaking mm. thing. He goes on forever, and he's even struggling to describe Isn't it. Shakespeare. Yeah. And 
you know, hear Spanish speakers, they've got one nice little word. So you are limited by your language and you also are limited. Your understanding is limited and your ability to share it is limited because of language. Totally. Our realities are very much shaped by the way we're able to contextualize them with words. And last time you talked about the fact that we may be losing languages, which is scary because we also may be losing understanding about emotion. Yeah. Scary. Why don't we just say nails? We'll shorten the expression and just call it nails. Oh, that sound just made me go so nails right yeah. now. Nails on board. N-O-B. N-O-B. Oh, knob. Oh, knob. That makes me so knob right now. I I'm nobbing. Nobbing right now. It doesn't, it doesn't feel right. <laughs> McKenna Bows, thank you so much for bending our brains a bit. Uh, cool stuff, folks. Isn't it great to be human? Even if we lack the language to understand it fully. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and improve your language. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show, and a happy day to you. Are you taking full advantage of today because it's old stuff day? This is the day anything old, you know, can become new again. We've heard the same same old, same old. Well, this is the day to do things differently. There is no limit to how you can change up your day. Take a moment to recognize the things that you do each day. Is there a better way, a more efficient way to do it? Try a different, you know, route on the way to work today. You could take a different path. This is such a great... Back in the 1950s, we learned the... See, this is the same old, same old music that I used to have in health class when I learned about pollinating of flowers. Yeah, and it was usually like, stuff, we all have it. Some is new, some is old. But again, we all have it. (laughs) Yeah. Same old stuff day. Uh, It's also, by the way, Dr. Seuss day. Cat in the hat. The Grinch who stole Christmas. Oh, no. How the Grinch stole Christmas. Which is is far superior to the cat in the hat. The cat in the hat is way too long and just really has no point to it. What was your first word you learned to read? Uh, metamorphosis. Oh, really? You were one crazy man. I learned my first word, cat, dog, hat, and xylophone. All things that you owned, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And accordion. Um, all of the... Uh, we'll be celebrating Dr. Seuss all day. By the way, Theodore Seuss Geisel was his name. His full name and a perfectionist at heart. So nothing wrong with that. Today, we'll also be talking about some research that come that's out that says dads are actually more involved in parenting than ever before. They're more involved. They're really? Back. They're back in the game. They're involved more than ever, except moms still put in more work. <sighs> now, is that because dads are uh, smart enough to avoid work? Are they lazy? We just – we. Try not to take the credit for it when we do it. No, I don't think that's it. But we're going to talk to a true blue expert that's going to help us understand how that's working, how it's falling out, um, you know, 
again, dads are more involved than ever, which I think we should not overlook. That is huge. And how great is that? Because, you know, there were generations where it wasn't manly to be involved with the kids. It wasn't manly to do that, to be home and change a diaper. Do the tea party, get your nails painted. Um, I know people that even to this day, because they love their daughter so much, they bring their cups to work. Jeff today is sporting because I have a really nice thermos. He calls it a thermos, but it's a hydro flask. It's a nice beverage container. So, but you know, you brought your sippy own. Sippy cup. We wear our rings to remind us to be true to our wife, right? Right. And I bring my cups to remind me to be true to my kids. Today you're sporting a yellow sippy cup, meaning it has a lid. Why would you bring a sippy cup? Well, I don't actually use the lid. Every time I want to drink, I unscrew the top and drink it from the uh, the rim like a man. Okay. Wow. Has a whale on it, though. A whale is manly. Yeah, sure it is. A big, fluffy purple whale. It's on, blue, but a blue whale you know. on a yellow sippy cup. Nothing screams manly more than that. We'll uh, we'll be talking about that uh, manly. <laughs> Uh, sippy cup uh, a little bit more, plus dads are more involved, plus we'll be getting, of course, um, some information from Caitlin Thomas later in the show, and she's going to be talking about cyberbullying. But first, let's get to the headlines, find out what's going on around the rest of the country that we should be paying attention to. What's going on, Terry? House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy said this morning that Attorney General Jeff Sessions should recuse himself from the Department of Justice investigation of, on Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election in light of the new information out this morning from multiple sources saying that Sessions had contact with the Russian ambassador to the United States prior to the inauguration and his own appointment as attorney general. I think you the trust of the American people, you recuse yourself in these situations. He yes. should. You, you said you would urge him to recuse I mean, himself. I don't have all the information in front of me. I don't want to prejudge, but I just right. think for any investigation going forward, you want to make sure everybody trusts the investigation come, that, that yeah. there's no doubt within the investigation. Does that, it's just his, easier. does that require his recusal, Congressman? I think it'd be easier from that standpoint, yeah. That was on Morning Joe on MSNBC. Jeff Sessions has come out. He has said he would recuse himself if the situation is, if it applies, I guess. Yeah, good. Representative Jason Chaffetz, a top Republican on the House Oversight Committee, tweeted this morning that A.G. Sessions should also clarify his testimony and recuse himself from the investigation. There's, so they're, they're, they're all they're all ganging on now. Everyone, Republicans, Democrats, Democrats are calling for Sessions to uh, resign, to step down, because of course they would. But uh, yeah, there's there's a, a consensus here of idea. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. And she, well, let's see, her her comments here were, uh, uh, Attorney General Sessions is not fit to serve as the top law enforcement officer of our country. Uh, he lied under oath during his confirmation hearings before the Senate under pen- penalty of perjury. He told the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee, I have been called a surrogate a time or two in the campaign, and I did not have communications with the Russians. We now know that statement is false. The ranking member of the House Oversight Committee, Elijah Cummings, also called for Sessions to resign. Hmm. She sounds a little bitter, Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, she's she's she didn't look very happy during that speech either. <laughs> uh, you can't win. Yahoo on Wednesday said that 32 million user accounts were compromised over the last two years by hackers forging what are called cookies, which are kind of the trackers that websites drop on you to kind of follow mm. you around the web. 
So hackers got into the Yahoo. This was the web giant already beset by two huge data breaches last year, said that the latest intrusions were carried out by the same state-sponsored actor believed to be responsible for the 2014 breach. In that breach, 500 million accounts were accessed. So this is a whole different monster from the other ones we've heard about. The cookies or tracking software are no longer active and don't uh, pose a threat, Yahoo says. But how are we supposed to believe them? They haven't told anyone any of this stuff until, you know, five, six years later. Chief Executive Officer Marissa Mayer lost her cash bonus for 2016 over the series of breaches. She's also promised to give up any award in 2017 because all this took place on her watch. Huh. So, whatever. Whatever. All I know is if you have a Yahoo account, you may want to think about trying not to use that as much. I, it might be time Change to your password, delete it. They're delete. selling it. Didn't they sell I've, it? I've and... heard. Well, they're, that, that's in the process because Verizon is buying them. Okay. I, I read last week that they took they got a $350 million discount on their purchase because of the breaches. Okay. We'll see how it goes with this new information that's come out. Yahoo! <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Facebook rolling out software that scans users' posts to identify language indicating suicidal or harmful thoughts. Ooh. In cases where in, uh, indicative language was found, the software alerts Facebook community team for review and can send a message with suicide prevention resources to the flagged user, including options such as contacting a helpline or a friend. The uh, decision to implement the software follows a number of suicides that have been broadcast live on Facebook. So now they're trying to do something yeah, about that's, it. Ugh. Facebook says its program is actually even better at recognizing the warning signs of suicide and self-harm than real people are. Really? We'll see. Okay. But they're trying to do something as their service is being used to broadcast these videos of people making this decision. Yeah. you got. they got to do something, right? You can't just stand by and then right. – and they've, they've had this software for a while. They've been testing it. Now they're going to roll that out and see if they can help people that way. Also, according to a February 2015th article or February 25th article in the Boston Globe, a 145-foot sleep room has been installed at Fenway Park where you took batting practice, Matt. Oh, my heavens. I didn't see the sleep room. Otherwise known as the home of the Boston Red Sox, since even the briefest nap before a game has been shown to enhance baseball players' physical performance yes. on the field. yes. Yes. How big is like a bunk room? What is it? It's a 145-foot room. It's got custom beds. It's got all this stuff. They've entered into a, a sponsorship agreement with the bedding company Bedgear. Oh, boy. Which will provide the eight-time World Series champions with a newly renovated room along with performance sheets, blankets, and pillows for the players to snooze on when they're playing home games. This is even better than George Costanza's idea to give <laughs> all of the players cotton jerseys. Yeah. Now, what I think what would make this even better is if they had water beds. Have you Imagine, had a water bed? I've had a water bed. I slept in one after I went snowboarding for the first time ever, and uh, I couldn't get out of it. Yeah, you kind of sink in there. Because <laughs> I was sore for two days. It says, over the past few years, on-site napping has become the in-job perk for various companies around the globe, states the National Sleep Foundation. However, the modern makeover at Fenway Park is actually rooted in science. After analyzing the statistics from 20 seasons of Major League Baseball, researchers from Northwestern University concluded that jet lag can have a direct impact on athletes' performance in both home and away games, from pitching to batting to stealing bases, especially when the players have traveled east. Okay, yeah. Because time zone differences. Or just bring in the Gators and then there won't be a problem. Gator ball! Yeah, you don't need sleep if you got a gator out there. So my question is, 
can we get a sleep room here? I've got a sleep room. Well, you have an office. The rest of us have cubicles. Or Jeff, he just kind of migrates around the building. Jeff's just a nomad. Well, I have everything I need. I've got orange juice. I've got candy. i got these Skittles and Reese's Pieces. you got a sippy cup. You're good to go and travel. <laughs> I, I totally agree. In fact, I, I really think we need more naps. Mm. I mean, I sometimes will take a nap in my car. Just don't do it while you drive. I've done that. So have I. You have too. <laughs> I wrecked so my truck. It's if the not Brits, If the Brits can have tea time, why can't we have nap time? Because we're adults. You're just going to move on through your day. Well, the Brits are adults that have tea time. Are no. they? Mm. Yeah, they totally are. Um, yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it ain't easy, guys, is, is the point, right? It's, life is hard. And then all of a sudden a big chunk of ice falls from an airline and crashes into your house if you live in Calgary. And you know what? That ain't that's probably blue ice. It's usually blue ice that's falling from the from the planes. WestJet says company will pay for the damages after a chunk of ice fell from one of its planes and crashed through the roof of the Southeast Calgary home. A preliminary investigation of the situation indicates the ice did fall from a WestJet plane on approach into Calgary. Um, Teresa Couch seventy seven was watching hockey. Oh, that is just so typical, right? Two Canadians in, Canada, in Calgary. Watching hockey. 77-year-old Teresa, 80-year-old Richard Couch were on the couch on Friday uh, e- uh, evening when an ice chunk came crashing through their roof. The game had just started and we heard an explosion, she said. It sounded like things falling all over the place. We came into the kitchen and there was nothing out of place. My, then my husband went into the hallway and there was ice all over the rug and debris and all the way down the stairs into the basement and a big, huge hole in the ceiling. Now, she said, we're very nervous. With all these planes passing over our house all the time, it's day and night. That's scary. One of the biggest pieces of ice they found in their house was 12 inches across. Mm. You know what? All I would say is don't touch it, Teresa. Yeah. I blame the Russians. Why? Because they're easy to blame. Everybody else is. They're, and they're actually blaming the Trump cabinet. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Russians. It's the ice. And that apparently – but now she's worried, right? She's been living under these airplanes for years. But that's the problem. Once you hear the story, you think, wow. They said in the, they lived there for years. Then they changed the flight path for the, airline, the air, airport nearby. So now they fly over their house, oh. and she says now every time Something. she hears an airplane, she's like, oh, no, what's going on? But there's other things that have fallen out of airplanes, including oh, yeah. humans yes, that were stowed away in the landing gear areas. I've seen it on many a uh, CSI-type show on TV. Yeah. There's always like bodies dropping out of the sky, and then they go to the airport. How would you spin that as a realtor? <laughs> if you look up, you'll see a nice sky view. Beautiful. You're close to the airport. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have an ice service that's delivered regularly. A natural breeze from the airplanes. Mm-hmm. Do you like that smell of airplane fuel? You know that excitement that you get when you're about to get on an airplane and you can smell the airplane <laughs> that fuel? That minor high. That's one way to sell it. <sighs> Calgary high, Rocky Mountain high. Um, staff at an Italian hospital are suspected of sh- uh, shirking on a grand scale. Doctors and nurses are among 94 hospital workers from Naples, uh, Italy, who have been placed under investigation on suspicion of repeatedly skipping work. Mm. 
That's not fair. One supervisor at the Laredo Mar uh, Hospital was instead found working as a chef in a hotel. So he's a supervisor at the hospital. He's also a chef at a hotel. He just didn't show up to the hospital. <laughs> That's crazy. The real issue, of course, pulling the paycheck that you didn't earn. The uh, the on-duty doctor at the hospital was spotted playing tennis and going shopping. Maybe this is like a community outreach program. We've had the stories, though, about the people working for cities. For years. For years in, in that area of the world where... It's like 20 years and finally someone, what is that person? Have you seen that person? No, Where who? have they been? And then you find out they've been pulling a paycheck for 20 years and they just sit at home all day. Where is Guillermo? Yeah. Hey, here's Don coming down the stairs. I bet he could tell us if this is, in fact, Italian. This is that song. This that is you, Italian. You, ah, because last time you could have sworn it was Greek. Yeah, we'll have to have Don come in and be the official judge. I'm surprised this to hear you say that. This is a different song than the one you were playing. no. The first time I played it, you spent the entire three hours con- trying to convince me that it was Greek. We'll have uh, I don't I don't know that we're getting Don. There he is, right there. He doesn't know that we're talking about him, though. We'll have to get him. But um, you know what's weird? Uh, whether this is because this could be it's Greek. Uh, <laughs> Bella is Greek. Yeah. Uh, all right. Police said 55 of the suspects that were uh, shirking their job at the hospital, 55 of the suspects had been placed under house arrest. Apparently, two of the health workers were caught clocking in 20 colleagues each. That's crazy. Don't they remember the old saying, we all have work, let, let no, no one, one shirk. shirk? Yeah, put your shoulder to the wheel. Yeah, apparently they didn't get the memo. And... Uh, 94 hospital workers not going to work. I mean, that's not a bad job. That is some major shirkage. But this, the sad thing is they're the ones that got caught. The reality is how many of us shirk our jobs every day, even though you're there? But we're still, like, tuning out. You know, we're still playing video games, whatever. And I'm sure there's some people that do that. All right, folks, we're going to take a break. When we come back, dads are more involved in parenting, yes, but amazingly, moms are still doing uh, more of the work. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. You know, if you turn on the TV, uh, you'll see a representation of dads that are that tend to be absent-minded, you know, complete buffoons. Although research shows that men are more involved in parenting than ever before, women are still putting in more work. And here to discuss that uh, this with us is Dr. Sarah Shopee Sullivan, and she is a professor of human sciences and psychology at the Ohio State University. She has taught and conducted research in human development and family science programs since 2003. Dr. Shopee Sullivan, thank you for being with us today. Hi. Good to, good to have this topic. Talk to me about, I mean, we, we do. We always seem to talk about the dads uh, or portray fathers as, as absent from parenting. But it, some of the research that's coming out lately is dads are more involved, not quite as much time put in as um, the moms are and work put in, but they are more involved. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, dads have increased their involvement um, uh, with children pretty dramatically over the past half century or so. That's great. Um, what, what, what's that attributed to? What What made the difference? Just the paradigm shift of equal rights? What was it? Well, part of it, yeah, was uh, women's um, entry into the workforce in large numbers, um, which um, necessitated, um, you know, greater involvement from others in child rearing. I think also changes in beliefs about fathers, um, you know, maybe uh, shift from thinking of fathers as, as just breadwinners for the family or disciplinarians to uh, thinking about fathers as um, sort of co-caregivers of children, that fathers could be, could be nurturing um, just, uh, just as mothers are. Hmm. Is, uh, so even though we're, we're stepping in more, we're, we are more involved, and actually it's shifting, like diapering, and, yeah. uh, which for my generation, that, I, I guess that's when that became more of a deal. But I, I, it seems so normal, right? Like, why wouldn't I? Why couldn't I? Yeah. And um, but I think I talked to the generation before me and they're like, huh? Um, <laughs> it seems so foreign. Are you kidding me? But uh, one of the things I wanted to have you explain to us, yet still moms are much more sleep deprived. They're, they, they're still doing a, a, a disproportionate amount of the work. Talk about why. Why is that? Right. Well, something that my research has focused on is the idea of maternal gatekeeping, and this is the notion that mothers, even those who work, you know, full-time outside the home, may feel some ambivalence about giving up uh, control over um, caring for children, especially even more so than, say, housework. Um, I feel like there's been a shift towards, okay, you know, if the dishes don't get done perfectly, it's okay. Yeah. But parenting the children, you know, th- doing those sorts of things, well, that's, um, you know, some women may feel like they just can't give up total control of that domain because it's important to them and also because the, uh, the roles of mothers are still very idealized. You know, they're very scripted. Everybody has an idea of what a good mother is. Whereas for fathers, I think there's a lot more variability in how people think of what a good father might be. You know, hmm. some people might still think of a good father as a provider, whereas others might have a very, uh, a much more modern view. Right. Well, and I guess part of those roles are scripted with mothers as being maybe the cleaner Sadly, yeah. or the cook, or the you know the scrape knee, kiss on the forehead, uh, take the bath. I mean, it, it's is that is that how they've been scripted? And why do moms have very scripted roles yet dads' roles are are changing? Yeah, you know that's a really good question. I'm not sure I have the answer to that. Um, and clearly, you know, roles for fathers and, and mothers are changing in some families. Um, it's just not, you know, we haven't seen a shift uh, towards um, complete, you know, equality or interchangeability yet, is what I would say. Yeah. Um, you see, in, in your article, you talk about intensive parenting. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Okay, intensive parenting is this uh, cultural norm that's um, become more prominent for middle-class parents. And again, because motherhood is an idealized role, especially for middle-class mothers, that basically um, says that in order to produce successful children, 
you, it requires tons of your time and focused attention. So whereas in years past, you know, mothers might have been, maybe they were spending more time in the home, but they were, they were cooking, they were cleaning, and those tasks hmm. took more time. You know, we didn't have all the efficiencies we have today, so they took a lot more time. And the kids might have been running around, you know, playing. They might have been accessible to their children, but not directly interacting with them, you know, not necessarily reading with them or um, giving them, you know, math worksheets or taking them to activities. And so intensive parenting is the idea that, you know, in order to raise successful children, you have to do all these things. You have to invest lots of time, emotional energy, and money, too. And so I, what I think that um, does is it puts additional pressure on mothers that may, again, feed into this idea that they, don't, they, they have to do that and they also have to, you know, many mothers have to or want to work outside for pay. So it, it kind of perpetuates this uh, inequality where fathers are more involved than they were before, but they're not necessarily involved in parenting mm. on an equal basis yeah. with mothers. Is this just the pendulum swinging to the other extreme? Oh, in terms of the intensive parenting? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, you often see those shifts, especially in ideals about child-rearing. Um, in general, child-rearing ideals in the U.S. have become more child-centered over time, so more focused on, again, you know, what the child needs and being very attentive to those needs. And I, I'm sure that – and there's certainly some circles in which there have already been shifts away and reactions, you know, to that, kind of like free-range parenting right. and so forth. So there are some um, – some um, sectors of the of the society that are that are uh, moving against that, but I would still say, in general, right now, the prevailing norm for middle class parents and especially mothers is a more intensive form of parenting. Yeah, that's interesting because it almost would seem like every every new idea on parenting, whether free range, whether intensive, whether you know allowing the kid to to do more, to fail more. Um, right. It might be more or unevenly absorbed by the female. And is that just the maternal instinct? Is that what is it that drives the moms to to take it on so aggressively? Yeah, I think that um, – well, I can't, I, I can't really speak to instinct um, per se. But I yeah. think that, again, mother, the mother role is very idealized. It's very valued in society. So it's something you want. You want people to think you're a good mother. You know, you want to live, try to live up to that ideal. And so as that ideal might shift, you know, it, it's a bit of a moving target. But I think it's still important to a lot of mothers um, who've internalized those ideas about what it means to be a good mother to try to, to, try to live up to those standards. Yeah. Wow, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> it really is, isn't? It? And I guess it's it's a it's a part of life. Um, yeah. The, but it it how when you when you were doing your research, you then say so. This intense parenting puts more pressure on moms. But uh, then you you were able to to eke out some data that talk that talks about the fact that they multitask more. They do things differently in a way, I guess, than the dads are doing yeah, on average. Yeah. In the house. What are you seeing that moms are doing with all of that pressure? Yeah, I think that, um, well, again, you know, some, some are, you know, rejecting it and explicitly saying, you know, I'm not going to parent that way, although I think that's a minority. Um, others, right, they're trying to, especially moms who are working for pay as well, I mean, they're, they're trying to multitask. Um, others do more multitasking of, say, housework and child care or paid work and housework, um, those kinds of combinations of family work than fathers do. At least that's what our data mm. show at this point. Um, so I think that some, for some moms, at least they're trying to, to cram more into, you know, limited time. And, and 
um, when anybody does that, you know, they tend to feel uh, subjectively more stressed and more rushed and so forth. But that's not to say that, you know, there aren't fathers who feel that way as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're, you know, primary breadwinners for the family, and they're also trying to live up to these changing ideals to uh, be more there for their kids, you know, and, in terms of time and so forth. And so I think, I think parents in general actually face quite a bit of pressure these days. Do, do the men, do you sense the men feel as much pressure to, if I'm the stay-at-home dad, do yeah. I feel as much pressure to produce revenue as a stay-at-home mom might? Um, that's, that's a really good question. I'm not entirely sure. I think that stay-at-home fathers, they've, you know, the numbers have been increasing, although they're still a very small uh, portion of the, of the parent population. Um, so there's a lot of talk about how there's more and more stay-at-home dads, and there are, but there's still not very many overall. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's still... Even as ideals for fathers have changed to incorporate um, caring for children, nurturing children, there's still quite a cultural emphasis on fathers as breadwinners. Um, and so um, for, that may, you know, cause some uh, stress for stay-at-home dads if they feel like, you know, especially other people look at them like, you know, oh, look, this, this guy's being, you know, lazy and just staying at home with the kids, whereas we don't tend to think about that and we don't tend to think about mothers um, staying at home in the same way. I right. Think. So I think that there is some stigma associated with being a stay-at-home dad, though I suspect that that you know will continue to change. Just like there's just like there's a stigma about moms being incredible moms, right? So mm-hmm. then when the woman's out working, she still in the back of her head thinks, "I still got to make dinner, get those kids. I've got to help with the report. We've got to get these kids to the program, the class." And they yeah. then that's why they multitask, I guess, more. Um, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Is I, I guess too as as we look at this, is there I mean, is there a way to create a healthy ideal, you know, instead of the extreme ideal? And if so, how do you change that in the paradigm or the head of a mom? Yeah, I think that, well, one of the things that I think, we, and you talked a bit about this, that's very, that's still unequal in the division of parenting work between men and women, and that's hard, especially hard to change, is all that thinking stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Is all that stuff, the worrying, the thinking, the managing, the organizing, so much of that goes on, you know, in a person's head. And especially for, you know, it seems to be especially true for mothers, that I think um, mothers, we need to support mothers in kind of getting that stuff out of their head and and into some kind of form that can be, that is more uh, amenable to sharing with, with, with the father. For example, I know uh, friends of mine, they have shared a uh, Google Calendar, you know, so it's not just that all the appointments and everything are in, you know, mom's head, but they have a shared calendar so they both can see everything, you know, that's going on and they can make appointments. And so I think that's actually those kinds of practical strategies could really help uh, bridge that remaining um, divide in terms of um, family work. Oh, it's so true because and if they are thinking about it uh, more I guess more naturally, or for some reason they're thinking about it more. Um, I, I'm wondering if all of a sudden we we then create systems, not even intentionally, like you're talking about, like calendaring, mm-hmm. where I don't even have access to the calendar because it's not. If it were just if it were an app like a Google Calendar, I could go put up and and be a part of. Um, I've because I've tried to create a Google Calendar app for our family. It's just uh-huh. my wife puts it on her planner and she uses uh-huh. her planner and it's always on her planner and it's always in her head. And then she's always the one that's stressed. She's stressed right. like, why didn't you know this? And I'm like, I just guess I've got to look at your calendar. But I guess 
it's I, it, it's understanding as a dad that that there's this disjointed approach, and we've got to together find a solution. Right, and I think another thing I would say for for couples is just to keep talking about these kinds of issues, you know, and don't let resentment build up yeah. if one a person thinks they're doing more. And it, it also changes with the growth and development of children. Um, you know, when children are very young, um, you know, mothers may be doing more, and, and maybe that's not necessarily a problem in any given family. Maybe the mother's happy with that, and the father's happy with that as well. But as children grow and develop, maybe the allocations um, need to shift. So I think it's important to just kind of talk openly about these things and not make assumptions about, you know, who's going to do what or what's uh, someone's responsibility or not. Yeah, no, that's great advice. In fact, uh, let's let's take a break here, Sarah. We're speaking with Dr. Sarah Shapi Sullivan. She is a professor of human sciences and psychology at The Ohio State University, where she conducts her research on uh, family science and human development. We'll take a break, come back, continue this journey about how we can how we can, I guess, share more of the worries, the work, and the benefits as co-parents and parenting our children together. Stick with us. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Sarah uh, Shopee Sullivan about the inequality of parenting and how to fix it. Dr. Uh, Shopee Sullivan is a professor of human sciences and psychology at The Ohio State University. Sarah, thank you again for your insight on parenting. Sure. Um, if if we look at it, is so moms are kind of they they seem to think about stuff more. They um, they probably they're they're multitasking between home and their other lives, their work lives. They I guess they're also then more uh, more. Are they organizing more? I'm assuming they're planning more. Um, in the end, yeah. are they? Yeah. Is there something too? Like I see in my family with my wife a lot of. Uh, she worries a lot about like the social side of my children's life, the play groups, the mm-hmm. are they involved in the activities? Where does that come from? And I don't know if that's a universal thing. I don't I mean, where is that coming from? Yeah, that's interesting. I think, again, you know, part of that is a more um, a norm that that um, is consistent with child centered parenting, you know, being very concerned. Parents today are very concerned um, with their children's social and emotional development. And and then I think it's just probably if uh, you know the the mother's more concerned about that than the father. You know, if, if yeah. you, these things kind of build on each other. If she's spending more time with the children, right, um, then she might observe um, their friendships uh, yeah. more. Um, she might see where they're doing well and where they're struggling, and then that might uh, kind of feed into a greater. Uh, you know, that greater awareness could it could feed into potentially greater concern and, and a feeling like, you know, uh, those relationships that children have need to be managed. You know, and again, I think that kind of goes back to mother's tendencies to be the the managers of, of their children's lives. Hmm. You I know in another article you talked about perfectionism and maybe yeah. that the trap that that can also play, especially when it comes to parenting, because who wouldn't want to be the perfect parent? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's so uh yeah, there's this uh so perfectionism in general, you know, has been studied a lot in psychology 
And I became interested in the idea of uh, perfectionism applied to parenting. So there are people who are perfectionists in general, and they just tend to be perfectionists about lots of things. But there's also this uh, domain-specific component. Like, So you can be a particular perfectionist about one thing and not about something else. So both things are true. And so I became interested in this idea of parenting perfectionism. And sure enough, I think the mothers um, who are most vulnerable to um, kind of taking on a lot of parenting responsibility, feeling reluctant to share it, you know, tend to uh, feel like they need to be perfect parents. They feel especially external pressure. It's not necessarily internal pressure. Mm. You know, people, it's good to have high standards for yourself. You know, it's good to hold yourself accountable. Um, but what, what, what's really bad is when you're worried about what other people think. Um, and so I've been very interested in, in that and also how that kind of plays out in social media, like on Facebook um, and things like that. Wow. And you can see, I mean, just by putting your child in a, a school that's kind of a primer school for, you know, the better, higher, best schools, all of a sudden you're going to surround yourself by similar parents that are pushing the same perfection level. You could see it would almost like create this major external pressure where everyone's trying to be even better than the next. Yes, I think that's true. And people tend to. Um, you know, move into, select into communities with uh, people, other people with shared values and beliefs and so forth. And if you're middle class parents, you know, looking to, okay, we want our kids in the best schools. And, you know, these are all very good intentions, yeah. but you're right. You may end up surrounded by families with similar values, which, you know, on the good parts of those things can, can be great. But if there are, you know, some negative aspects to those, those beliefs or practices, they can get amplified as well. Mm. It's amazing. I know a child that a great kid, super, super intelligent, driven parents, and he published his first book at eight. And I'm sitting oh there goodness. thinking, holy cow, what are you going to do when you're 30? You're going to be so exhausted. But yeah. And again, that doesn't happen without, uh, you know, without parents that are, are pushing and, and, you right. know, wanting to be and wanting to elevate their experiences in life. But boy. Oh, it's it's a wonder how some of us ever made it through any of this. How do, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that way often. <laughs> do, you, do you feel like, yeah, like my mom used to just tell me to go play in the backyard. Right, right, like, right. That's uh, a good example of, of a kind of change, really, yeah. Yeah, it turned I out a okay. a lot of people have observed. <laughs> what would you say, um, just as an expert in the field, what – what does a good parent look like? Meaning, what what are the principles? What are the things that really are essential to parenting effectively? Not trends, not, you know, the latest, greatest hype. What is it that kids really need from a parent? Yeah. Um, well, I think that uh, actually there there's a lot of research that consistently shows that there are really two aspects of, of parenting that are important. One is... Uh, warmth, um, emotional connection with children. I mean, when children are babies, you know, this is uh, talked about in terms of attachment and parents being sensitive to children's needs and responses. So children learn that, you know, they can depend on their parents. Um, The idea is that eventually they will learn that that relationships are beneficial to them and that, you know, they will go out into the world and be able to have healthy relationships with uh, friends and romantic you know, partners as they grow up. So there's that warmth connection. As children get older, uh, that uh, a lot of that is revolves around communication. You know, communicating. Parents need to communicate clearly their expectations. They need to be open to negotiate with children when when it's appropriate. Um, and the other major aspect is is control. 
And, um, and that can take many different forms, but um, setting, you know, limits for children. And obviously that looks different for a toddler, you know, versus mm-hmm. a preschooler and an, an adolescent, but setting some limits and structure. And if those, those features are in place, generally children will, will do well. And there's a lot of research that supports that. So there, there tends to be, in my view, you know, a lot of, again, trends in parenting that come along. Oh, you should really do things this way or do things that way. But I always tend to go back to those, those basic characteristics of strong uh, parent-child relationships yeah. that over time still seem to be, those seem to be the core things. It's important to have a strong, close emotional connection with children, but also to, you know, have routines and standards and expectations and that, you know, that are, that the child is aware of. And they, in a way, they powerfully just seem to to go hand in hand. The more warmth I have, the more I might be able to implement controls and the more yeah. I implement controls that are consistent and and we do this together the more warmth there can be yeah because actually yes when um, parent-child relationships are close and warm and communicative children are more receptive to parents discipline um, children are more you know they and to their expectations and they internalize those more and develop stronger conscience uh, mm. actually as well so that's powerful talk about just as we wrap up what would you say is the one thing Sarah that we can do and I'm kind of thinking as me as a dad and but even uh-huh. moms to be to be more involved in cooperating in this parenting thing so what can what can we do to to make to work better together as parents I think that um, I think both men and women, you know, are, are party to this, of course. Uh, and so, I guess I would say, um, for dads, I think that um, dads can be more, in some cases, more proactive in taking on greater responsibility for child rearing, um, and not just wait till they're asked to do things, yeah. you know, which I think happens sometimes. Um, on the other hand, I think mothers can be proactive in terms of. Um, Making um, making efforts to, um, I guess you know, loosen the grip on yeah. <laughs> on, on control over child rearing, you know, and and just say you know if if you know dad has the kids for an afternoon, you know, don't suggest what they should do, you know, don't like wor- you know, unnecessarily yeah. worry about them or you know things like that. Try to try to do something else. Go to the gym or you know do read a book or do something else you want to do. Don't feel like you have to, you know, explicitly try not to manage father-child relationships. Love it. Love it. Great advice. Sarah Shoppy Sullivan, thank you so much for your insight, your time uh, with us today. Again, Sherry, uh, Sarah Shoppy Sullivan is a professor of human sciences and psychology at The Ohio State University and a wonderful uh, resource, I think, for, for all of us to be able to uh, co-parent together, work together for our children. We'll take a break. When we come back, Caitlin Thomas will be joining us. We'll be talking cyberbullying. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. In today's world, nearly every person is signed up uh, for some form of social media, right? Uh, Whether it's Facebook or Instagram, Snapchat, most people have at least one. And they're great tools that we can use to stay connected with people and make new friends. But on average, teens are spending up to nine hours a day just surfing through these apps. This has led to a major increase in cyberbullying and other problems 
uh, tech problems. What can we do about it is the question. Caitlin Thomas is here with us this morning to share uh, with us some of the things that the social media companies are currently doing to make this a little safer place for everybody. Hello, Caitlin. Good morning. So cyberbullying. Yeah. Going up, right? Mm-hmm. Because right. we didn't have cyberbullying. We just had bullying. Just bullying until we had the World Wide Web. Right. Which, right, we have lots of awesome things that come from it. But we always need to address that there are negative things that come from all good things. We just address and we try and fix it. I started thinking about this the other day because Twitter put out, you know, this kind of, I don't know, like a PSA. And it was going around Twitter where they were talking about how they just announced this new step that they're taking to try and avoid... Um, cyberbullying yeah. and spam accounts and all those things. So Twitter announced that it will start relying on a new algorithm to identify and restrict accounts for engaging in abusive behavior to other people's right. Twitter accounts. Okay. Which the company defines as either repeatedly tweeting without solicitation at non-followers or violating the Twitter terms of service. Mm. So, you know, saying things that are inappropriate, using crude language, um, Sometimes you have spam accounts that will just spam out mass amounts of links, um, sometimes to pornography, sometimes to some really other horrible things. Um, So this new algorithm is working to try and catch those and shut those down faster. Because they they have the technology. Oh, yeah. They have the the capability to do so. And they're seeing that there's a lot of people on Twitter that will make fake accounts and then go harass other people that they do know um, and, and bully them and whatnot. And so now if you report it, it should instantly be shut down rather than it used to take a couple of days. So one of the things, though, we may not do we not take the time to report it like because it is just when you see something that's not appropriate. Yeah, well, and it's you easy. You can just right-click and report it. Yeah, you right-click and you can just say report inappropriate, and that's all you have to do, and Twitter's algorithm will go in and find that and take care of it. But this has been the age-old issue with bullying, right, where the person right. being bullied feels shame and they don't want to Yeah, and Twitter's public. It's not like you can privately tweet at someone. Right. So if it comes across your feed and you see something that's rude and then you like that makes you feel uncomfortable, it's probably making the receiver feel uncomfortable yeah. too. So go on and report it. And the algorithm will hopefully take care of that much faster. And those spam accounts that get out, that, that hack into your accounts, that hack into other accounts and spam out these really awful links that you yeah. don't want to see, repeat those, report those, and they'll be taken down because of this new algorithm. So I think that's really cool. Very I just cool. read that the PwC accountants who are responsible for the big Oscar flub are getting death threats through social media. Oh, my, oh my gosh. That is just unbelievable. Because it's to me. an Oscar. It's okay, like relax. It's just an Oscar. There's it's an just, announcement. People make mistakes. It's fine. Um, Boy, Facebook. So Facebook has this thing they call the support dashboard. Um, the multifunctional dashboard launched earlier this year, um, and Facebook just recently announced it's available to 100% of its users. This tool lets users track reports they've made about bullying or abuse as they're being resolved. So before you would report somebody's bullying me, and then you wouldn't really know what happened. Right. But this allows you to track it. Um, and it'll show you um, what Facebook's doing with it. Um, the social network is also also collaborating with the Ad Council to launch a massive bullying prevention advertising campaign for TV, print, and online. Cool. So Facebook has you report it, and then you can go through this dashboard. I'm not sure. You'd have to go look up all the instructions on Google. But it'll show you that it's been reported, that it's been reviewed, that it's being looked at, and if the account's been shut down. So you know exactly where it, it, oh, it is really online cool. rather than just reporting it. You know, a person and feeling like it's never going to go through. Yeah, like I mean, they, it's almost like they have to now because it's gotten so bad. Where now suicides are taking place, kids yes, are of, live streaming yeah, it, their own suicide, and so yeah, yeah, and, to have a dashboard where you could go in and all of a sudden see the progress of this, so that your your report's actually making a difference. So you no longer feel 
like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. No one's going to even see it. Mm-hmm. They do see it. And because of the new algorithm that Facebook also adopted in this dashboard, you can go in and see it. Right. That. And then one of my favorites, um, Instagram. So if you see someone on Instagram posting about self-harm or being bullied online, you can report that and Instagram will take care of it. But this is for people that are posting about self-harm or potentially suicidal messages that you feel. Um, You can anonymously report that to Instagram. And Instagram will send the user a message saying someone saw one of your posts and thinks you might be going through a difficult time. If you need support, here's how to get help. And they link that user to different phone numbers, suicide oh, prevention hotline, oh, great. Um, local numbers in their local area because if their location's turned on. Um, so you as a friend can just do that. Or even if you're not really a close friend so you yeah. feel uncomfortable reaching out, you can just send it to Instagram. Instagram will talk to that person for you and say, hey, here's this if you need and it. And it's done anonymously, anonymously so you're not so going to be thrown under the bus. You don't have to be thrown under the bus. You don't have to feel weird about it. Instagram will just do it. And then if they need it, there you go. They feel like that there's a little ray of hope that comes up. And, and you know, maybe some people think like, oh, well, it's just on their phone. They're not going to respond. But you'd be surprised how many people would actually respond to Instagram sending them something mm-hmm. like that. Because then that, in the back of their mind, they know that means somebody was paying attention yeah. to them. And, and it's probably subconsciously the reason they sent the message in the first place. Right. They're, they're asking for help. Yeah. That's so why people post If you're asking for things. help and nobody is seemingly reaching out or reaching back... It reaffirms your belief that it doesn't matter. Yeah. and Now they're reaching back. That's cool. This tool also, if users will also be directed to the support page on Instagram if they attempt to search for a hashtag related to self-injury. That's cool. So. Taking care of it. Cyberbullying. Really cool stuff. I just thought that was some really cool stuff that I wanted to share. That's great. Parents, you can feel safe. There are things that these social media companies and are And parents, you can just keep paying attention too by just watching yeah. your kids' feed. And see what, yeah. And you Be their friend. And, Make uh-huh. sure that you're friends with them on all of their social media. See how you are, Caitlin. Well done. Beautiful job. Uh, Caitlin Thomas is her name. She will be graduating soon and she, I'm, I'm sure, would be looking for employment if you're looking yes. to hire. Yes. <laughs> Caitlin, you're awesome. That's uh, that's it for the second hour of the show. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be back helping you see and be the good in the world. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy Dr. Seuss Day. You know, of course, the best Dr. Seuss would be Cat in the Hat. Um, no. Okay. You know, I wouldn't read that book in the car. Would I you, wouldn't. Would, I wouldn't read that book if I was traveling far. Would you read the book if you had a scar? I wouldn't read the book if there was a life action version of Babar. Wow. What if? Would you read the book if I hit you with a bar? That's taking it a bit far. Got me. <laughs> that, uh, that's why we need old Dr. Seuss back. Today, Theodore Seuss Geisel was born on March 2nd, and uh, we're celebrating his birthday. By the way, be careful if you pick up a Dr. Seuss book, because it might say it's a Dr. Seuss book, but it, then it turns out it's just some ghostwriter who wrote it after he passed away. Oh, well, that's not good. How would we know? Just watch carefully. Look in the look at the fine print on the cover. 
Great advice. Thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, We'll also be celebrating today Old Stuff Day. This is the day that you might want to take a look at the things you just keep around. The old stuff, we call it. You know, maybe it's that tattered teddy bear. That worn out uh, child sippy cup that you bring to work with you every day. Maybe it's time to throw those things out and, you know, venture out. Maybe pick yourself up a new drinking vessel. A new sippy cup? (laughs) A drinking vessel made for adults, not children. One that maybe doesn't have a sippy lid on it. Wonder what Dr. Seuss's word for a sippy cup would be. Um, Probably like a flamdoozle. <laughs> Darn flamdoozle, the child's flamdoozle just keeps not uh, working, clogging up. Um, so today, the day, uh, we don't throw out people, we don't throw out, you know, humans, but we might throw out some thoughts that don't work for us anymore. And we won't be throwing out this candy that's been sitting here for a week. No, we'll be That'll eating be, that. We'll be going to good use. <laughs> we'll be recycling. Anyway, uh, happy Old Stuff Day. We will be getting into that. we got a busy, busy day for you today. We're going to be talking about how to fix a bad day. Uh, we'll be re-listening to an interview I did with Amy Gallo on how to fix, the bad, how to fix a bad day. Also visiting our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Get to all that fun. Plus some more empty news. We've got some uh, crazy ones for you, including if you happen to be the youngest child, uh, it may be it may be you've been given an extra gift. Hmm. Uh, it's been validated in with me. It's obviously been validated with you, Jeffrey. And I think Terry's the, the youngest child. No, I'm the middle kid. Oh yeah, so that explains yeah. it. Yeah. Um, we'll get to all of that straight ahead. The gift of being the youngest sibling, sibling, plus, of course, our hero story all up next. But first, let's do the headlines. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? The Trump White House reportedly rejected training for senior staff and cabinet nominees on ethical guidelines, political reports Thursday. According to documents obtained by the website, the program could have better prepared officials for working with existing laws and executive orders and provides guidance on how to navigate Senate confirmation for nominees and political appointees, how to deal with the congressional and media scrutiny, how to work with the Congress and collaborate with agencies, some of the same issues that have become major stumbling blocks in the early days of the administration. Both the Bush and Obama transition teams received such training, but Trump's people rejected the contract-based course expected to cost a million dollars. Wow. Well, you know what? That is pretty pricey. Well, they said it's because of shifting priorities. Yeah. So they skipped the ethics training, and all we've had is questions of ethical nature for the last month. So, I don't know. Cause and effect? Eh, who's to say? Yeah. Not just anyone can see the Republicans' newest plan for repealing and replacing Obamacare. When the details of the plan are finally released, expected today, it will be available only to Republican members and their staffers on the House Energy and Commerce Committee, and even they can only view it in a, quote, dedicated reading room. Bloomberg reports, no one is getting a copy. We can go and read it, said Representative Chris Collins of New York, who indicated that the, to the Washington Examiner the draft will be hidden away in a basement room of an office building that adjoins the Capitol. Bloomberg noted the high level of secrecy surrounding this new draft are likely meant to avoid a repeat of what happened last time when an outdated draft leaked prematurely and was quickly panned by conservatives. So when they mm. were when they were trying to pass Obamacare, yeah. some documents got released prematurely, conservatives got a hold of it, tore it apart. 
so and you, that wasn't even it. So. You mentioned in the last hour that the some of these baseball stadiums are going to start having nap rooms. Yes. I think they need to have a reading room, too. They could. Oh, that's a great idea. Maybe it's separate. They, yeah. Be right next door. Yeah. Uh, if you remember with uh, what the TTP, the trade partnership that mm-hmm. uh, President Trump's going to get us out of, I guess, they were uh, criticized because they kept all those deliberations and plans and the final draft secret until they had the actual plan. And that's kind of the same way they're doing it here, so the program doesn't get derailed in the planning stages, I guess. The spring-like storm system that spawned tornadoes in the Midwest that destroyed more than 100 homes and killed three people is rumbling eastward, putting about 95 million people in its path, forecasters said on Wednesday. Forecasters with the Storm Prediction Center said the storm system appeared headed towards the mid-Atlantic states and southern New England. They say the storms are more typical of late March and April, but they're spinning up in regions that have been unusually warm for this time of year. Hmm. More storms, more damage. March comes in like a lion and out like a lamb. Wasn't that a Muhammad Ali quote? I don't don't think so. And finally, a man from the U.S. has taken out a giant ad in the Times of London claiming to be the rightful king of England. Uh Uh-oh. Alan V. Evans of Colorado says he is a descendant of the Royal Welsh line from the 3rd century. The ad says Evans is a direct descendant of the unbroken line legally documented since the 3rd century in Great Britain and registered in the Royal College of Arms. (laughs) It goes on to describe generations of lineage starting with a claim that Evans is the descendant of the founder of the Kingdom of Wales. Wow. He is uh, giving legal notice to all of his relatives, according to the ad, and in 30 days plans to claim, quote, his royal historic estate, as well as his land, assets, and titles. What? What's his name again? His name is Alan Evans from Colorado. Alan so, Evans from Colorado. The is new... he, so he's planning on living under the sea then, if he's going to be the king of Wales? But Evans will not claim his right to the throne until the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he's going to battle. He, I didn't know she lived under there. He's He, he yeah. can manage the situation by just having his title, the wealth, the land. Boy, won't, not won't the, the Brits be surprised when they find out Mr. Evans is their rightful king? It says he shall further pursue an injustice of history by claiming by right the throne and the sovereign crown of Great Britain and Westminster upon whence the sad future death of her future, her majesty queen elizabeth ii as he will not out of the greatest and most deepest respect dispose her in li- or depose her mm-hmm. not dispose but depose yeah, her in life for the greatest service and selfless sacrifice that she and her husband prince philip have rendered in this mm-hmm. great so yeah. he's not going to go in and no, like, he doesn't bump, want, he's not a jerk push her out of the throne he's going to wait his turn but he's the guy you know, nothing helps your self-image and uh, self-worth more than hanging out with creatures that are described as having blubber. Yeah, you're missing, I think, the point. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a whale. It, it's whales. So more than one. Got it. Okay. According to The Independent, another U.K. newspaper, yeah. uh, a man called Alan V. Evans, mm-hmm. similar name, might be the same guy. You mean you, – you mean – your Highness, from, Alan V. Evans. From Wheat Ridge, Colorado, attempted to claim 400 acres of land in Georgia's Twiggs County in 2012, claiming that his ancestors had lived there. He said the evidence was destroyed in a fire in the county courthouse in 1901. See, this is genealogy but, gone amok. This is where it got it gets uh, away from you. He's some old guy. You see? But uh, the funny thing is, wait till he brings his little flavor, uh, you know, his American style. Yeah! To um, to Buckingham Palace, 
They're going to love it. He's going to scuff up the floors with his cowboy boots. <laughs> Would that not be the most amazing story if he actually – if he were the rightful heir? And he then all of a sudden they bring him in. Wasn't there that movie King Ralph yeah. with John, John Goodman? John Goodman? Yeah. It would be the reincarnation of that. Wow. We wish you the best of luck, Mr. Evans. King. Uh, sir. Would he change his name? Oh, yeah. Well, he would just be H.R. Uh, his Royal Highness, H.R. Puffin stuff? Evan, Evans. Okay. Well, he'd, be, he'd, he'd probably have to have like a name like the Duke of Earl? Windsor. Oh. Duke of Duke of Wales. I don't know. What Hazard. The Duke of Hazard County. That's what I would. If I was the king, <laughs> Duke I, of Hazard County. I would get Hazard County mixed in there somewhere. Yeah, I think that's a different Duke. Yeah. You guys, let me just say, um, working with you, I've realized something, a truth that's very profound. You both have watched way too much TV. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. I thought compliment day was yesterday. It was. I'm just I, – I forgot one. OK. One of them there it is right now. All right. Good news. Uh, good news for – Future King yeah, coming out of Great Colorado. Britain. Congratulations. That's where they come from. Um, crazy uh, little fact we wanted to bring up about the youngest sibling. Um, research from YouGov. Uh, I guess it's just YouGov. <laughs> It's a dot .org or something. Yeah, it's like yougov.org.gov. A lot of polls you can participate in. And Terry, we don't want you to feel bad about this, but out of all of the children in the family, it's actually the youngest sibling that is the funniest in most cases. Because they get away with everything. No one tells them no. No, no, no. The parents have given up by that point. In part, it's due to the older child being overwhelmed with responsibility that can lead to a more serious tone. Overparenting. Uh, it also mentions – the study mentions that splitting out the first and last-born siblings in British families with more than one child, a clear divide in personality traits emerged mm. in their study. They – you know, so – and by the way, weird thing, nobody mentioned anything about the middle child. Right. Emerge and middle child, that doesn't happen in the same sentence. Yeah, no. Weird. Uh, perhaps one of the most significant parts of the study is that 54% of the older children said that they were more responsible than their younger counterparts. And the younger siblings, on the other hand, considered themselves to be easygoing and funny. Right. The middle child, again, uh, the one that has been ignored, abandoned, and has other issues. Right. Uh, where, where did you fit in in your family, Terry? I was the middle child but the firstborn male. Okay, so you so. You, appear, mm. you think that mattered, I guess. Yeah, well. So yeah. you've probably seen the episode of Full House where Stephanie. Um, no, no. There's a whole episode about how she's the middle child and she feels neglected. Wow. wow. And uh, you so know, original there was, sitcom writing. There was just like really cheesy, sentimental music yeah. going on in the background, and Danny gave her a hug, oh. and oh. said, "Stephanie, you know, it's always in their bedroom." Right. Stephanie, it's not that you. We value you less. It's just. We never really notice you. We just value the others more. You blend into the wallpaper. I'm sorry. It's not that you're not valuable. You are. It's just we don't remember you. So I'm the youngest. Yeah. And Matt is the yeah. youngest. And I consider I consider that we are both incredibly funny people. Mm. Or maybe it's just that younger siblings find each other to be the funniest. Maybe it's yeah. kind of like a community. Maybe nobody gets our humor. 
Why don't you ask Spencer and Jerem where they fall in their families? I will. That maybe that will help us understand what's the key or to their success. Or it's just the, the general coddling of the, the younger child where no one wants to tell them the truth. The coddling or yeah. some would say coddle. Some would just eh. say the protection of the great heir. Can I just point out one thing? Our Is it going to involve a sitcom? Yes. Our full house reenactment is not complete without you giving Terry a hug. Okay, well that's not happening. Full house? Why did I personally have never? I don't, I've never watched. I don't think an entire Full House episode. But guess what? You know exactly what happened. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's a sitcom. I've I've watched a little bit of the re- a few of them, and then I guess that's all you needed to the know. The reason there was some popular elements to it was because people have seen that show a hundred times. A hundred. But it felt like 400. They saw it on different strokes, which Just, is another show. You can watch it on Netflix. The show really hasn't changed. Good. Yeah, except for everyone's old. Hey, by the way, um, before we leave, uh, you know, the, the great um, United Kingdom. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to bring up a story about a Scottish neighborhood. Incredible people. Residents of the neighborhood in Scotland have armed themselves with hair dryers and reflective vests to combat speeding drivers. People in that village of Hopeman posed as police officers using speed guns, well, hair dryers, to uh, prevent the speedy drivers who have placed residents in danger by exceeding the speeds of 60 miles per hour along a stretch of road leading in and out of their area. Members of the neighborhood have also taken other strange measures, such as propping ladders against the walls to allow children to pass between back gardens rather than cross the dangerous freeways there, the dangerous roads there. So... They're very caring people, and but how powerful is that? The neighborhood watch basically. They just don their reflective gear, and then they borrow, you know, mom's hair dryer, and they go pretend to be a speed cop, a, 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 a what are they, a speed trap? Do you which think it's I used working? To do as a kid, I'm sure. So, um, as you were saying this, I realized that this is another news story that somebody just ripped from the headlines and turned it into a movie but i don't think they have a trailer cut yet they do have a clip hold on they made this they made this neighborhood watch group they've made it into a movie yeah this story and i this clip is gonna it's gonna show you that um you know the dangers that come from from speeding yeah for but sure. then also the danger that comes from uh, this much power going to your head okay cool All you speeders out there need to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punks? Ooh. Oh, boy. I know what you're thinking. Did he use a 110-volt hairdryer or a 220-volt hairdryer? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement... I kind of lost track myself. Wow. So that is a clip from the film Dirty Hair Dryer. Sounds good. Sounds really good. But it's the voltage. I always get that wrong too. I never – especially when I go to Europe. I don't remember and I don't have my adapters. It's hard. I try to stay away from voltage these days. Yeah. You learned that lesson. Uh, You got that feeling back in your fingertips though? (laughs) I've got this feeling inside my bones. Okay, good. Oh, good. It goes electric. Okay, um, that's good. That's about all. I that's, all that's all you got. <laughs> that's all you need. Okay, we're going to take a break, 
And, I was uh, going to help you, but I forgot. Yeah, to no, so. I don't want that any help. I don't want anybody to be helped on that one. Um, we we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about how to fix a bad day. Uh, replaying an interview we did with Amy Gallo. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. To the Matt Townsend Show. You know, no one ever said life is easy, but some days can seem extra difficult. Maybe you got into an argument with your teenager, or maybe traffic was awful on the way to work. Even small things can snowball, and before you know it, you're in a bad mood. So what do you do to turn your mood around, and how can you prevent another bad day in the future? Amy Gallo is joining us. She's a contributing writer for the Harvard Business Review, and she's got some answers for us. Miss Gallo, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. You've never had a bad day, have you, Amy? Oh, never. Not, <laughs> not today. Not today, sure. at least. Uh, <laughs> talk to me. Uh, so what is there something that triggers the bad day? Is it is it just what is it? What what constitutes the bad day? Well, that really depends on the person. Yeah. Um, and in large part, I mean, you can even it, it varies with yourself, um, with an individual person. So. One day you might spill coffee on yourself and laugh, and another day it might make you cry or scream at someone. Yeah. Um, so it's really, oftentimes people say, you know, I've had a bad day, like you said, I got stuck in traffic, or I got in a fight with my teenager. Um, and it's really usually about the bigger picture. Something bigger is going on for you, whether um, you have a lot of stress at work, or you're under a lot of pressure at home, or you know something's going on in a, in a relationship of yours. So it's usually not that small thing that happens, right. but it's that thing that sets you off. The um, trigger. Exactly, the trigger that makes you just feel awful. So we, I guess one thing we could do to immediately start to fix it is know what our triggers are. Yes. For sure. So anytime you start to feel cranky, you catch yourself snapping at someone, you know, you just start to feel bad. It's important to think, what's really going on here? You mm. know, is it really about the coffee? Is it really about my dog, you know, not cooperating today? Whatever it is, um, you know, really think through what is actually setting me off. And it may be that um, you have a colleague you work with who's particularly difficult for you. You don't like the way she communicates or, um, you know, she often makes you feel bad about the work you do. Um, it might be, uh, you know, a certain route you take into work and you see something negative. It could be even bad news you hear on the radio. There are some interesting studies that show that if you consume negative uh, news in the morning, you're much more likely to have a bad day. Oh, man. See, my problem, my trigger is... Waking up. Anytime I'm awake, <laughs> it just is a trigger for me. When I'm asleep, I don't have any of these problems, Amy. Well, I, you know, it's funny you say that because I do think one of the things I do, I have to remind myself and I remind my eight-year-old daughter to do this, is that when you get up and you think, oh, I just want to go back to sleep, you're already putting yourself in a bad situation. Yeah. Right? So you have to, and this is one of the things you do anytime you're experiencing a bad day, whether it happens first thing in the morning, middle of the day, in the evening, is 
think about something positive. Mm. Uh, that's the first thing you want to do is it, the minute you start sort of get doing that negative thinking is you think, okay, what one thing am I looking forward to today? Um, what three things are going well in my life right now? Because uh, that will help short circuit. There's studies, neuroimaging studies that show you can't be grateful and depressed at the same time. Huh. It's, just, it's just not possible. So if you're, if you're actually in, I guess, so that's the cognitive part of it. You got to get in your head even if you have to kind of force yourself, start looking for something to be grateful for. In fact, in your article, you say studies show that when you're positive, you're 31% more productive, uh, you're 40% more likely to receive a promotion, you have 23% fewer health-related effects of stress, and your creativity rates triple. Yeah, that's the, that's from research by Sean Aker, who wrote The Happiness Advantage. And he, he's got some really interesting stuff that shows that positivity affects all of those things, right? Your productivity, creativity, your health, and your career. You know, people are more likely to promote you. People are more likely to want to work with you. Um, And I think one of the other important things is that not only does it affect you, but it affects those around you. Oh, yeah. Um, emotions are incredibly contagious. And you, if, you, know, you probably see this. Your wife is in a bad mood. Your kid is in a bad mood. Your coworker is in a bad mood. Before you know it, you are too. <laughs> um, so this is especially important to know how to turn about, around a bad day if you are a manager because people are watching you um, and people are going to catch what you're feeling and displaying. So it's incredibly important not to be wallowing um, or to be particularly negative. That is, I mean, I guess that's the key too, is you might even have certain people on your team. So if I'm a business manager, I might have a team member that just brings the funk. Yeah, the Debbie Downer. The Debbie Downer. And, yeah. Or Don. Or no, no, yeah. Don's my boss. I can't say that. Or uh, uh, Devin Downer. Um, right. But all of a sudden, boy, when they walk in, you just feel like Lord Vader has you know, hit the flight deck. It's yeah, scary. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and you feel it. You definitely, yeah. it's, it, you can, it does feel like they literally have something that's jumping off them and getting on you. <laughs> and, yeah. And right. You're, you're like, I'm being infected. Um, and I, I think the best way to counteract those things is to be positive yourself and to model, especially if you're a manager to model, um, positivity. And when things, um, go wrong, when, when you're under particularly stressful, or you're on a particularly stressful project, or you've got a tight deadline, is to remind people what positive things are going to result from the hard work you're putting in, mm. or to be grateful. You know, turn to someone and say thank you for for all the extra effort you're putting in. Um, that will really help to change the mood, even if you've got uh, that negative person on your team. It's it's really interesting um, how one person even. All of a sudden, hitting some fun music in the office and throwing a ball around for two minutes could change the game. Yeah, like yeah. it's—I mean, I guess it could also irritate people. But <laughs> I just—I look at it like there's power, isn't there? There's power in in recognizing the mood, yours and everyone's around you. I mean, like it's funny to me—you're bringing up positivity and being happy, which seems so trite in your Harvard Business Review, except. The research is profound and it backs it. And yeah. it's not – this isn't just, you know, pretend. This is like be real. Go yeah. recognize what's going on and change it. Yeah, and that's important. I mean you're not faking it. Right? No. Any, if I sit there and say I'm so happy and, <laughs> la, la, and, la. and, and everyone knows that's not true, they know I'm a miserable person, yeah. that's not going to help. No. Right? It has to be genuine. And that's why you want small – you know, you're not going to go from a day where you – you know, spilled coffee on yourself, got stuck in traffic, got in a fight with your wife, and 
you know, your boss yelled at you to, to the best day you've right. ever had, right? But you, do, you find small ways in, and that's take really small actions that, that can help change the mood. And again, it's, maybe it won't make it a, a you know, you're not going to have a huge smile on your face, but hopefully it just won't bring you down further. Mm. Because not only are emotions contagious to those around us, but we trend on our emotions. So if you start to think negatively, that's the trend that your your brain is going to go in. So it's that's very easy to have sort of that downward spiral. So what you're trying to do is sort of interrupt um, that slide so that you're not far, falling further and hopefully you can start to trend upward. Love it. Let's take the, a break, Amy. We're speaking again with um, Amy Gallo, who is uh, at Harvard Business Review. She's the author of the HBR Harvard Business Review's Guide to Managing Conflict at Work, a how-to guidebook about handling conflict professionally and productively. She's also a contributing editor to Harvard Business Review, um, which, and we're just honored to have her on the show. She's got a great um, article out, How to Turn a Bad Day Around. Stick with us, folks. We'll come back, continue the discussion on the other side of the break. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. While we anxiously waited for years as New Horizons made its way to Pluto, NASA researchers weren't just sitting on their hands. A team from Marshall Space Flight Center has proposed an idea that would take us to the edge of our solar system in record time. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories behind the ideas that shape our future. The Heliopause Electrostatic Rapid Transit System, or HERTZ, is a propulsion system ideal for deep space missions to the outer planets and beyond. Although much like a sail on a sailboat, this design is not your typical solar sail. The long tethers extending from a rotating spacecraft interact with solar wind, the stream of charged particles flowing constantly but erratically from the sun at very high velocities. The momentum exchange propels the spacecraft forward. Over periods of months, this small force can accelerate the spacecraft to enormous speeds, making it possible to explore the extreme outer solar system in less than a decade. And Phase two funding from NASA's Innovative Advanced Concepts is helping take this scientific dream to an engineering development. For Innovation Now, I'm Jennifer Pulley. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. Hi, I'm Jerem Jordan of BYU Sports Nation. I asked our producer if I could try a voiceover, and he said, why not? I mean, it's not like Brian Logan trying to take over my role as co-host. Uh, Jerem. All right. <clears throat> BYU Sports Nation now airs twice a day on BYU TV, live at noon Eastern and the Encore at 6 Eastern. Hey, maybe a new voice would freshen things up. Then again, maybe Brian would think I want a backup plan. I can't show weakness. Hey, cancel this voiceover and don't air that! It's always complicated, folks, but it's beautiful. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're talking about how to turn the bad day around. Who d- who doesn't need to learn how to do that? By the way, my boss, Don, just walked in because I made a comment about Don the Downer. I meant Devin the Downer because Don's not a Downer. 
Don's an upper. Hey, um, we are talking on the phone with Amy Gallo, and uh, she wrote a wonderful article, How to Turn a Bad Day Around, She uh, that was published on uh, Harvard Business Review's um, site, and uh, she she is the uh, the author of the HBR Guide to Managing Conflict at Work, and uh, which is a how-to guide about handling conflict professionally and productively, which I'm telling you, that right there is worth all the money in the world if you could learn how to manage your own conflict. Um, today she's teaching us about how to turn the bad day around. So far, we got to pinpoint the problem, turn it positive. The positive, you know, in, in almost every way, positivity is going to pick up our game and, and our health of our lives. She taught us about being more grateful, and uh, she's going to continue the discussion with us. Amy Gallo, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. Talk about um, the routine. I guess one way you say in your article that we can turn the, de- the, the bad day around is, like, really look at your routine. Yeah. Well, and I think that you mentioned something before the break about turning on music and throwing a ball around. And I think that's an important um, thing to – there's two things in there. One is that changing your routine. So if, if things are – You know, if you're feeling bad, if your team's under a lot of stress, don't just all sit at your desks and hunker down. You really want to, you know, get up, move around, like you said, play some music, listen to a podcast you like, do something that can help you just sort of change things up. Right. Um, And then the other is also just, you know, being with people you enjoy being with because it's it's easy when you're in a bad mood. As we talked about, you know, you know those moods are are. Um, contagious, so you don't want you think, oh, I shouldn't be around anyone today. I'm just in a bad mood. Yeah. But you know, find someone who you trust and who you you know look for your most positive friend and go have a chat with them. Go out to lunch, do something different, so that so that you can sort of break um, break the mood that you're in. Yeah, I mean, I've even just seen changing my routine of what I'm eating. Like, like, because you'll just grab some carb load moment for the breakfast, and then you have the the fog of carb. Um, <laughs> and I wonder, I, I just eating more protein for me in the morning changes a lot. Yeah, I think eating is an important one because you know it obviously affects your physiology, but you also um, you're making a good choice, and that's. That's something you that helps to short circuit a bad mood as well. So if you can make a positive choice for yourself, so I'm gonna um, eat choose an apple instead of you know that sugary muffin, yeah. or um, I'm gonna have you know tea instead of coffee. But ma- making that positive choice signals to your brain I'm doing something good, and that helps to sort of set you in the right direction. As I was saying earlier, sort of trending upward away from negativity more toward positivity. And that's, I mean, I know my bad days come from a lot around productivity. Mm. So it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I've got nothing done. I've been dealing with emails all day, and I'm just, you know, in a in a rancid mood because I think, I, you know, all those things I wanted to get done today are not getting done. So true, which so, is why you also teach one of your points is take action. So if you're if you're overwhelmed and in the funk, if you don't, you can maybe act your way out of it. Do something. Get a result. Finish a project you were supposed to do. Get something done. That's got to feel good. Yeah, exactly. And that tells your brain – that helps your brain record a victory, right? Yeah. So you're saying, look, I'm not a loser. I'm not <laughs> – all these negative things aren't happening to me. I'm in control of the situation and I can make – I can win. Yeah. No, I love that idea. You also talk about resetting um, realistic expectations because some of our – we're just not – we're not very real or attuned to what we can actually get done 
And it seems like that might cause problems because we thought we were going to get a lot more done today. Yeah, you should see the list of things I have on my to-do list today. It's probably about four times as long as yeah. it should be. Um, and that is, that is important, is, is you need to be realistic um, about what you'll be able to accomplish and also just about how things will go. You, you know, we get in this, because we're all under a lot of stress, we're all, most of us are overworking, we've got a lot going on in our lives, we think, you know, if it, if it doesn't go exactly as I planned it, everything's going to go wrong, and you know, you can't live that way. You have to be willing to accept that there's going to be bumps in the road. The boss isn't going to like the way you did something. Your coworker's not going to get his part of the project done on time. And then what do you, what do you actually do? Um, you know, how do you bounce back from that without it letting you put, you know, without it putting you under? Right. I mean, and, and you've, duh, this is going to happen. It happens regularly. Right. So right. It's almost like some of us are shocked by it. Like yeah. that, that guy on that project with me, no way. He didn't get it done again for the 44th time. Right, right. And that's, I mean, I think one of the things I like to do is think about, especially when something's, you know, a high pressure situation or I'm working with the colleague who never gets things done on time. I think, okay, what are the five possible scenarios for how this should go? Hmm. And, and, you know, here's my ideal scenario, but here are these four other ways that things could go down. And so when it does happen that way, I'm not taken by surprise. No, it's so good. It, that's called learning, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. Isn't that weird? It's like, no way, you're, Amy, you're going to learn <laughs> and not recreate this again tomorrow. Yeah, well, that, that yeah. <laughs> it's, but that, that, it's as simple as that. That's why I love what you're talking about here because it's, this isn't, this is your life. Control it, learn. I mean, yeah. things are going to happen. You'll be surprised. Yeah. Bad days can still be created by just tough life, but. You can also prevent probably a good majority of them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think one of the one of the pieces of the expectations piece too is to, is to think about um, perspective and that you know what's happening right now might feel really awful, but really in the scheme of things, how how awful is it? And this doesn't mean you need to compare yourself um, to other people and think, oh, they have it much worse than I do. But truthfully, that can be a little helpful. Is to think about is to think about how good you have it. Think about all the things you do have. So yeah, your boss is mad at you, but are you healthy? Are your kids healthy? Do you have a home? Like what are, what good things do you have going in your life? Mm. And kind of, yeah, just line it up. Overwhelm yourself with the good. Exactly. Exactly. Give us. Uh, we've got one more minute or so. Um, what would you say, Amy? If I if I just had to say, okay, what's the one thing? Maybe you've already mentioned it. But what would you say is the one thing that is the big thing? Well, I would say gratitude because I think that's the being grateful for what you have um, and being um, grateful to others. That's we haven't talked about that yet because that is you do want to not only think I've got you know a, a healthy kid and. Um, a secure home and a great job, but you also want to thank other people for contributing to whatever it is you're working on. The act of doing something kind for other people trigger, triggers a positive loop in our in ourselves so that we can get out of that negativity and be more positive. Mm. Amy, I love it. And sound research. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's this is um, a lot of stuff by Sean Aker. He's got some great books. If people want to check him out, Before Happiness and the Happiness Advantage. Um, Annie McKee, who works with, 
with Dan Goleman on emotional intelligence. Oh, yeah. They've done tons of research in this area. It's really interesting stuff if people want to dig further. And and also, everybody go to Harvard Business Review, hbr.org, and just look up Amy Gallo, and you'll find a ton of stuff. She's the real deal. Amy, thanks for being with us. Matt, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You bet. Take care of your kid. All right. Thanks Bye-bye. so much. Bye. Good stuff. Amy Gallo, uh, go check it or check out her work at Harvard Business Review. We'll take a break, come back to a couple of other professionals, our good buddies down there at BYU Sports Nation, folks. Sit with us. We'll be right back. It's always complicated, folks, but it's beautiful. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're talking about how to turn the bad day around. Who who doesn't need to learn how to do that? By the way, my boss, Don, just walked in because I made a comment about Don the Downer. I meant Devin the Downer because Don's not a downer. Don's an upper. Hey, um, we are talking on the phone with Amy Gallo, and uh, she wrote a wonderful article, How to Turn a Bad Day Around, She uh, that was published on uh, Harvard Business Review's um, site. And uh, she she is the uh, the author of the HBR Guide to Managing Conflict at Work, and uh, which is a how-to guide about handling conflict professionally and productively. Which I'm telling you, that right there is worth all the money in the world if you could learn how to manage your own conflict. Um, today she's teaching us about how to turn the bad day around. So far, we've got to pinpoint the problem, turn it positive. The positive, you know, in, in almost every way, positivity is going to pick up our game and, and our health of our lives. She taught us about being more grateful, and uh, she's going to continue the discussion with us. Amy Gallo, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. Talk about... Um, the routine. I guess one way you say in your article that we can turn the de- the the bad day around is like really look at your routine. Yeah. Well, and I think that you mentioned something before the break about turning on music and throwing a ball around, and I think that's an important um, thing to. There's two things in there. One is that changing your routine. So if if things are you know, if you're feeling bad, if your team's under a lot of stress, don't just all sit at your desks and hunker down. You really want to. Sit- you know, get up, move around, like you said, play some music, listen to a podcast you like, do something that can help you just sort of change things up. Right. Um, and then the other is also just, you know, being with people you enjoy being with, because it's, it's easy when you're in a bad mood, as we talked about, it, you know, you know those moods are, are um, contagious, so you don't want, you think, oh, I shouldn't be around anyone today, I'm just in a bad mood. Yeah. But you know, find someone who you trust and who you, you know, look for your most positive friend and go have a chat with them, go out to lunch, do something different so that so that you can sort of break, um, break the mood that you're in. Yeah. I mean, I've even just seen changing my routine of what I'm eating, like, mm. like, because you'll just grab some carb load moment for the breakfast and then you have the the fog of carb. <laughs> Um, and I wonder, I, I just eating more protein for me in the morning changes a lot. Yeah, I think eating is an important one because, you know, it obviously affects your physiology, but you also, um, you're making a good choice. 
And that's that's something you that helps to short circuit a bad mood as well. So if you can make a positive choice for yourself, so I'm going to um, eat choose an apple instead of you know that sugary muffin, yeah, or um, I'm going to have you know tea instead of coffee. But ma- making that positive choice signals to your brain I'm doing something good, and that helps to sort of set you in the right direction. As I was saying earlier, sort of trending upward away from negativity more toward positivity and that's i mean i know my bad days come from a lot around productivity Mm. so it's two o'clock in the afternoon i've got nothing done i've been dealing with emails all day and i'm just you know in a in a rancid mood because i think i you know all those things i wanted to get done today are not getting done so true which is why you also teach one of your points is take action so if you're if you're overwhelmed and in the funk if you don't, you can maybe act your way out of it. Do something. Get a result. Finish a project you were supposed to do. Get something done. That's got to feel good. Yeah, exactly. And that tells your brain – that helps your brain record a victory, right? Yeah. So you're saying, look, I'm not a loser. I'm not <laughs> – all these negative things aren't happening to me. I'm in control of the situation and I can make – I can win. Yeah. No, I love that idea. You also talk about resetting um, realistic expectations because some of our we're just not we're not very real or attuned to what we can actually get done, and it seems like that might cause problems because we thought we were going to get a lot more done today. Yeah, you should see the list of things I have on my to-do list today. It's probably about four times as long as yeah. it should be. Um, and that is, that is important, is is you need to be realistic um, about what you'll be able to accomplish and also just about how things will go. You you know, we get in this, because we're all under a lot of stress, we're all, most of us are overworking, we've got a lot going on in our lives. We think, you know, if it, if it doesn't go exactly as I planned it, everything's going to go, go wrong. And you know, you can't live that way. You have to be willing to accept that there's going to be bumps in the road. The boss isn't going to like the way you did something. Your coworker's not going to get his part of the project done on time. And then what do you, what do you actually do? Um, you know, how do you re- bounce back from that without it letting you put, you know, without it putting you under? Right. I mean, and, and you've, duh, this is going to happen. It happens regularly. Right. So right. It's almost like some of us are shocked by it. Like yeah. that, that guy on that project with me, no way. He didn't get it done again for the 44th time. Right, right. And that's, I mean, I think one of the things I like to do is think about, especially when something's, you know, a high-pressure situation or I'm working with the colleague who never gets things done on time, I think, okay, what are the five possible scenarios for how this should go? Hmm. And, and, you know, here's my ideal scenario, but here are these four other ways that things could go down. And so when it does happen that way, I'm not taken by surprise. No, it's so good. It, that's called learning, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Isn't that weird? It's like, no way, you're, Amy, you're going to learn <laughs> and not recreate this again tomorrow. Yeah, well, that, that yeah. <laughs> it's, but that, that, it's as simple as that. That's why I love what you're talking about here because it's, this isn't, this is your life. Control it. Learn. I mean, yeah. things are going to happen. You'll be surprised. Yeah. Bad days can still be created by just tough life, but... You can also prevent probably a good majority of them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think one of the one of the pieces of the expectations piece too is to, is to think about um, perspective and that 
you know, what's happening right now might feel really awful, but really in the scheme of things, how, how awful is it? And this doesn't mean you need to compare yourself um, to other people and think, oh, they have it much worse than I do. But truthfully, that can be a little helpful is to think about, is to think about how good you have it. Think about all the things you do have. So yeah, your boss is mad at you, but are you healthy? Are your kids healthy? Do you have a home? Like what, are, what good things do you have going in your life? Mm. And kind of, yeah, just line it up. Overwhelm yourself with the good. Exactly. Exactly. Give us. Uh, we've got one more minute or so. Um, what would you say, Amy? If I if I just had to say, okay, what's the one thing? Maybe you've already mentioned it, but what would you say is the one thing that is the big thing? Well, I would say gratitude because I think that's the being grateful for what you have um, and being um, grateful to others. That's we haven't talked about that yet because that is you do want to not only think I've got you know a, a healthy kid and um, a secure home and a great job, but you also want to thank other people for contributing to whatever it is you're working on. The act of doing something kind for other people trigger, triggers a positive loop in our in ourselves so that we can get out of that negativity and be more positive. Mm. Amy, I love it. And sound research. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's this is um, a lot of stuff by Sean Aker. He's got some great books. If people want to check him out, Before Happiness and The Happiness Advantage. Um, Annie McKee, who works with, with Dan Goleman on emotional intelligence, oh, yeah. they've done tons of research in this area. It's really interesting stuff if people want to dig further. And and also, everybody go to Harvard Business Review, hbr.org, and just look up Amy Gallo, and you'll find a ton of stuff. She's the real deal. Amy, thanks for being with us. Matt, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You bet. Take care of your kid. All right. Thanks Bye-bye. so much. Bye. Good stuff. Amy Gallo. Uh, go check, it, check out her work at Harvard Business Review. We'll take a break. Come back. Sit with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, we've got our good friends at BYU Sports Nation that are in Las Vegas, but we can't go there because they're getting set up. They've still got uh, they've still got to plug in some equipment, and so we won't be able to visit with them today. Again, the big games that their tournament in Las Vegas will be starting, I believe, tonight. So we'll find out. Uh, I could have sworn when we did a preview with them just a few minutes ago that I could hear some dice noise. Oh, yeah. Are they doing Yeah, they're probably... Yeah. The wheels, the yeah. uh, roulette wheel spinning. Yeah. Ah, these kids. These kids nowadays. So I wanted to take a little bit of time um, and talk about um, thinking and our thoughts. I have a lot of people that I work with uh, in my practice that are their brains are going a million miles an hour. And they have too many thoughts coming in, and it, with all this technology and with constant interruptions and the media and you know text messaging, emails, they've got a lot of thoughts. You're, of it's, course, talking about me. Exactly. Okay. And so I wanted to help you out today, uh, Jeffrey, and help you figure out how to, to manage your thinking, your thoughts. Did you know um, some research suggests we have anywhere from twenty to 70,000 thoughts a day, right? Because – and by the way, remember, some of the thoughts are subconscious and some are conscious. Some of you actually think, oh, I like flowers. I'm having that thought right now about flowers. But some thoughts you don't even think about. Ninety percent of thought you don't even think about. 
How much and how much of this has to do with social media, TV watching, reading, oh, yeah. reading? Interesting, right? And then you might put something into your head just because you saw it on social media, and your your brain at one level is still processing it. And then you might actually bring it into the the cognitive state where you now conscious state where you share it with another. So these thoughts get in our head, and I found that there's uh, there's four different kinds of thoughts that I bring up. I mean, I'm sure if I talk to a neuropsychiatrist, we'd find seven. But I'm not a neuropsychiatrist. But I, I have some some ideas for how you can get the thoughts out of you. One of the keys, by the way, to thinking is thoughts are they stay in your head because of energy. Right? It takes energy to keep a thought, to dwell on a thought, to process a thought, to access a thought. So if you're having 70,000 thoughts a day, you are probably exhausted. So here's some ways to get these thoughts out of your head and to do it effectively. So some of the thoughts we have in life are just to organize us, right? Uh, the thought about scheduling, your appointment, they're the thoughts that we have in our life to keep us healthy, to make sure we don't get killed, uh, appointments we need to go to, places we need to go. And I know a lot of people that don't, they just think they're going to wing that. So what I have found is if you want to be able to create some peace of mind, you could immediately take all of those thoughts that are important, like don't forget to pick up your kids. Don't forget to unplug the iron. All of these things that are really critical, you can now use your technology to help you schedule because you can now just press a button and say, Siri, set a reminder for me to unplug the iron at 8.50 when I'm leaving. One of my wife's biggest pet peeves is the dozens of alarms that I set on my phone to remind me to do everything. see, See, that's her pet peeve. But you know what? Don't do any of that and then see what her pet peeve is. <laughs> I'm going to get anything done. It's going to be this guy gets nothing done. So if you could just eliminate a lot of thoughts by getting them scheduled, getting them planned, getting them in there, you would actually use the energy to tell Siri or however you want to schedule it, get it on your appointment calendar. That energy would help eliminate the thought. So you don't need to keep thinking it over and over and over and over. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night and you had a thought, oh, my heavens, I forgot my report's due tomorrow. And then all of a sudden you had to work on it. That's your subconscious waking it up. So those thoughts are still alive in us. Another thought are the thoughts that connect us. How many times have you been sitting there, uh, you heard something at work, you heard a story that you really like, and it reminded you of somebody, and you thought, hey, I really ought to connect to this person. A lot of us then, we don't connect then. So the rule is the minute you think it, do it. So if I think, hey, I really ought to forward this or share this with my wife, share it. Because if I would take that immediate thought of my wife and immediately create an act to share that thought, then that thought will actually go away from me. But have you ever had a situation where you thought, I really ought to call so-and-so, maybe you were prompted to do it, and you never called so-and-so. So So you thought about it the next morning, then you thought about it the next afternoon, and the next morning, and the next afternoon, and that occupies energy and time, and you still haven't done it. But if you're having 70,000 thoughts a day, and that – I mean that – you would assume that that means that so many of these thoughts are jumping at you all at one time. Yeah. How do you prioritize and say let's take care of this thought instead of this thought so that it will go away? Well, I might do it this – when you had the thought, right? Like if all of a sudden I'm, I'm meeting with somebody and they say, hey, so can you meet Friday? I wouldn't say let me go check on that. I would say right, let me check and I check right now because – I'm doing it now, so I don't – otherwise, I just delay it and I create 15 more thoughts of it. Do it now. If I have a prompting that I really ought to call so-and-so, 
I would either schedule a call to so-and-so or I might not call him. I might text him and I might just do it right there. Hey, I just met a guy that mentioned your company and I thought of you. How are you doing? I'd just check in. Now, that will create issues. I get that. But you're already going to have the issue if you thought or felt prompted to do something and you didn't do it. There is a reason we keep thinking to connect to people because it helps us stay alive and healthier. There are some other thoughts that block us, right? Those thoughts where we feel inferior, inadequate, we feel imperfect, we feel like a failure, some of those negative, ugly thoughts that we can't get out of our heads, or you know, the thought, I should apologize to so-and-so. One of the things that um, I might suggest you do is if it's an apology thought, just do the apology as fast as you can. Just get it done, band-aid off, rip it out. But if it's a if it's a typical thought that you're a failing parent, you're just not good enough, then um, I do this thing called data dumping where I suggest to my clients they take all of the energy of whatever they're hurting. Maybe it was a spouse that hurt their feelings or did something and write down what you were feeling. Write one line. Oh, he makes me so mad. I'm so sick of the guy. Then write a second line, but don't write it on a new line on the paper. Write it right on the top of the old line. So you now have written two lines on top, one line on top of the first line. And then write a third line about how that person makes you feel and write it on top of the first two lines you've written. So I've really only, I've written on top of the same line three times. And by doing that over and over and over and over until you get all the energy of the thought or the pain out of your head, you feel better. The pain goes away. And what's cool is it didn't take a form that you can read. So now you can say anything you want in written form and nobody can reread it, which I love. So it allows you a safe way to, uh, to get those thoughts out of you. Last but not least, there are some thoughts that inspire you. Anything you think you're going to, that has inspired you, I would blog it, journal it, write it down. I'd get a journal. I'd make a family history. I'd record it. I'd talk it out. But I'd document it. I have a bunch of different sites I go to. But I, if I have an inspiring thought, I write the quote down. I collect a million quotes. And they inspire me. And eventually when I die, my kids are going to have a billion quotes They're not mine. They're from everyone else. I'm constantly writing and learning. So just ways to get thoughts out of your head. Not that you need that, of course. but Hopefully uh, they'll have a billion dollars too. Yeah. Hey, as we we end, we like to end with a hero story. This is a really cool story about a doctor-to-doctor donation. A doctor gives a kidney to a colleague. Listen to this. It's not unusual for a surgeon to save another's life, but Dr. Colleen Coleman did so by undergoing the knife to help an ailing colleague who desperate colleague who desperately needed a kidney. Coleman donated to Dr. Brian Dunn, an anesthesiologist she worked with at Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach, whose kidneys had failed from chemotherapy that he received as a teenager to treat stomach cancer. Coleman came through after one donor withdrew Um, her offer and Dunn's doctor advised him against accepting a kidney from a patient with Lou Gehrig's disease. I thought it just wasn't going to happen, Dunn told the Orange County Register. He had received a kidney from his mother when he was 25, but donated kidneys don't last forever. In late 2015, his health was failing. He could hardly keep up pace with his young daughter. He said, I started dragging. He just felt bad overall. He started dialysis in April and it got to the point that uh, it became really time consuming and it felt like a prison to him. Coleman's intervention almost didn't happen after an initial screening erroneously said that she wasn't a match. 
but only after testing, the company called back on June to say, you know what, it was a total mistake. She is a match that uh, Dr. Colleen Coleman decided to give her her kidney. Coleman's grandmother had died of kidney failure when her mother was a six-year-old girl. I didn't want his daughter to grow up without a dad, Coleman said. I wanted to make sure my kidney could pee, she said. And so once it could happen, guess what? She gave it. She gave up a kidney. That is a hero. And by the way, doing her job as a doctor? No, most doctors don't have to give up an organ. You just have to pay for an organ to get to a doctor. But uh, the hero is the person that sees the need and then steps up and makes it happen. That's why we do the show, to help inspire you to see, you know what, as bad as the world seems at times, it's pretty good with a lot of amazing people, and you are one of them. We can't do the show without you, so uh, join us again tomorrow morning, bright and early, 9 to noon Eastern time, uh, where we'll be back to give you more ideas to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Until then, make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow.